Hi, I'm Ben. And I'm Josh. And this is the Bad at Magic podcast, a podcast about games, life, and other things, and welcome to episode 103. Boy, talking about other things. Ben, do you know how long the longest surgery of all time lasted? Uh, I'm guessing it's 103 somethings. Some, well, pick your pick your unit of measure uh, here. 103 minutes. 103 hours. minutes. That's not 103 <laughs> minutes is not even two hours, man. Like I think my wife has had surgery for a long time. 103 hours? Are you 103 for real? 103 hours. Uh, four oh straight days. So it was wow. a surgery in 2001 that lasted 103 hours. A team of 20 was it doctors like to at- separate t- uh, um, Siamese twins or something. Do, do you want to do my bit? Is that what this is? Do you uh, just is, want to is take that what over it was? my whole numbers thing? Yes, it, that's exactly no. what it was. Why are you? Why? I was trying to think. What why? is the most complicated possible surgery you could do? You know what? I'm I've sure got like I've got like one shtick on this podcast, <laughs> and like, and you're just gonna come in here and just just take <laughs> it away from me, just like that. China huh? shop. Just just Sorry, just pull gosh. the rug right out from underneath me, huh? Okay, reset. It's fine. <sighs> Emotions down. New day. Hey Ben, do you know what the longest surgery in the world was? Um, I'm guessing it's 103 somethings. Minutes <laughs> doesn't seem right. I'm gonna go with hours. It was 103 hours. A team of 20 doctors at Singapore General Hospital worked in shifts to separate 11 month old conjoined twins at the head. Here's the thing: they didn't Whoa. expect it to go that long because all of their scans said, "Oh yeah, we can like, cut here, cauterize this; it'll be fine." But when they actually got like the skulls peeled back and open and to separate the brains, they were intertwined, not just grown together, but like wrapped around each other in weird helixes. And so they had to track every one of like hundreds of tiny blood vessels to make sure, okay, which twin is this blood vessel going to? So they cauterize it in the right spot and then work as best they could to untwist the brain matter and then build on like the graft on skulls where they didn't have skulls before. Wow. Okay. So I got to know, what, did both twins live? Because that's the kind of thing, like, if you're going to take four days to do that, and at the end, if you failed, it doesn't seem like, I don't know. I don't know. So do you know what's funny about the difference between you and me? I stopped reading. Like, I got all the details <laughs> of the article. I'm like, oh, that's fascinating. Let me write that down for the podcast. I did not, never entered my brain at all. Oh, I wonder if they lived. Um, and this doesn't say actually. Wow. Okay, I have a personal story. Oh, here this. it is. Here it is. Here it is. The operation was a success. Um, All right. Oh, the one of them contracted meningitis several years afterwards and passed away. Um, the other twin is now fifteen. Ah. I, several years is long enough to absolve the doctors of liability. Yeah, as far as I'm concerned, it still sucks. But I mean, the they the, that it sound the operation was a success. They didn't die as a result of the of the operation. Yeah, I wonder if that year of living, the year or two of living apart was sufficient for the one to not regret it. You know, like, oh, if only we just kept our heads joined together, we, she would still be alive. Um, I don't know. That's a good question because this happened when they were 11 months old, so they had oh. no agency over the decision. But now one of the twins, the surviving twin, is 15 years old. I wonder what she feels about that. Huh. So my younger sister uh, used to get frequent um, kidney infections. And when she went in to get um, examined and diagnosed, they found out that she had like a small deformed third kidney. So she went in for an operation to have the third kidney removed. But kind of like you described with those brains, it was connected in ways they hadn't anticipated. And so when they cut the small extra one out, 
the regular one like stopped functioning. Oh, fun. So, so she went in to, to have take... one kidney removed and she ended up getting two kidneys removed. So she went in with three and came out with one. That's that. <sighs> All right. So I'm not going to bash on the medical profession. I don't right. know how complicated I, yeah. things are, but I can't help but think that a surgeon in that instance, like, okay, I can call in more surgeons. We could spend the next 103 hours working in shifts to try to unwind these things. Or I can just remove her spare kidney and save everybody the hassle because she's already got one and she only needs one. I think hassle is probably part of that equation. Maybe another part is also the fact that, like, for this particular bit of anatomy, it's somewhat optional. That makes sense because, like, this wasn't life-threatening, right? Like, if I remove this entire – like, I can either spin up all of this hospital's resources and then, like, take a ton of time and energy and just – sheer medicalness away from a lot of other potential patients to unwind this totally unnecessary extra kidney. Now it, with the conjoined twins, it was a little different because that was their brains. Like, okay, we're in this. Right. We're now we're elbow deep into it and we can't stop until we finish. And Oh, by the way, if we don't do this right, they both die. And I have to imagine expanding the length of a projected kidney surgery also has its own risks. Like, yeah, we could do this and try to save this organ, but it's optional technically in our biology and extending the surgery another eight hours. It means they're under sedation longer and there's fatigue and we can make a mistake and it just introduces too much risk. That's interesting. Like how much paperwork do we sign for that? Because now I'm trying to remember, like, was your sister ever briefed? Like, Hey, by the way, if things reach a certain level of complication, the doctor's going to make a call and you're going to lose both kidneys. I don't think so. And I don't think anyone got asked. I think that's you just came out and found out that's what happened. So I, I'm, I'm, I'm having this internal debate because I'm, I'm, we want to be able to trust professionals. And we, we need to be able to put a lot yeah, of that, that maybe burden. Maybe it's all the way at the bad end, like you said, where they just went, <laughs> ah, this is too much trouble. She doesn't need it. Cut it out. Well, and this is why the medical profession needs to like administer itself. And there's licenses and medics and, and, and morality boards and that kind of thing because yeah. – the doc, because the doctor has this patient's life in the hand and knowing that they can't put a, a giant three-ring binder of like, okay, here's all the possible scenarios we can run into. Please check the box yes or no for the ones that you agree or disagree with. The doctor just has to make a call. And so yeah. you want that doctor to be you know, on the cutting edge, uh, all up on their continuing education and they know exactly what they're doing. Or they can be this guy that's like, man, I've got a tea time in like an hour and a half. You know what? We're taking the whole kidney. <laughs> Nurse, get me some more scalpels. This just got too complicated. Forget about it. I'm out. Yeah. Wow. Well, sometimes that could be an actual life and death decision, and this time you just had a you know redundant organ. Well, I'm glad she's okay, and I'm glad that they handled the the redundant organ. Yeah. Me too. I'm glad she's all right. Did she get to keep it? They put it in a jar for it? <laughs> well, I guess at that point, like, it's not viable as something. Uh, surprise, we had an extra kidney. Eh, but it doesn't work without this tiny weird one. Okay, well, we can't donate it to someone else. Throw it away. Oh, uh, by the way, we have an extra 1.2 kidneys. Yeah. <laughs> I got to follow up. So two episodes ago, I told you a story about how I accidentally emailed uh, 3,000 people and then panicked and tried to recall the message. So I just listened to that episode back, and I laughed just as hard listening back to it. Like, (laughs) oh, Ben, you and your distro list. Yeah, that was really hilarious. It's been six weeks, and this morning, 
this morning, Josh, I'm still getting those automated notifications of whether or not my recall succeeded. <laughs> yep. Oh. I-, I promise you. I promise you, your last day at work, you will probably get at least one failed delivery oh, notification. Man, just constant reminders of how dumb I am. But in my new office, I now am the proud owner of my very own candy dish. And oh, I I want to posit that having a candy dish in your office is the human equivalent of having a bird feeder. Oh, Be- okay. Like... You, I, I'm in an office behind a closed door in a hallway, and normally people just pass by in the hallway. But when I put delicious candy in this candy dish, people that normally wouldn't come in stop in for a sec and take a piece and say something nice and leave. And I'm like, that was nice. I'm going to keep restocking that at my own expense because I like having birds stop by my bird feeder. Dude, what's really funny is we put a bird feeder in our backyard about a month ago. And the way that these things shake out, it somehow has become my responsibility to keep refilling it. And uh, so this is the side effect of having a bird feeder, Ben, is that there are birds in my backyard constantly, which mm. means that there is bird poop in my backyard constantly. <laughs> and they're also like the bird feeder is elevated. And so they'll like get up on it and then like seeds will fall down. So then they go down to below it to try to get into that stuff. But it's it's in a border area like it's in gravel right next to my my artificial grass. And so the birds are like digging the rocks out onto my artificial grass over my border. And so I'm constantly having to rake my, my rocks back in. So anyway, that's all so much detail to say the, the, the negative side effects of having a bird feeder is you have to deal with the mess and the filth that the birds present. And so okay. what human filth have you experienced with your candy dish? Yeah, so obviously no one's defecating or occasionally someone spills some coffee in the carpet that I'm going to have to clean up. That's happened two or three times, but that's because of the coffee machine, not because of the the um, candy. I would say probably the biggest negative side effect is occasionally I just need to carry on uninterrupted and people will stop in and want to chat and I just have to stop and allow the interruption. I guess maybe I wish I had a button on my desk where I could just push it and it would hide the candy dish. You just need a big opaque cover, like one of those cake pan covers over it. Candy dish closed. Don't yes. come in right now. There you go. Or maybe like a bear trap. You just set the bear trap open on the candy dish. It's just one of the realities of life as an exec that's, that sometimes you're going to need to get stuff done, but you're going to get interrupted no matter what. The phone's going to ring. People are going to come in. Stuff's going to happen. You just got to be able to prioritize and make stuff happen. Yeah. Well, look at you being the, the productive and personable guy with the candy. Now, did you stock it exclusively with vanilla or uh, vanilla Tootsie Rolls? No, you can't get those over here. Although I have a feeling I might be getting some soon because a friend of mine sent me a photo of some of those with an open box that looked like it was about to be packed up as a care package. Aww. So if that box, but I don't know if I'm going to share them. But if they send me one of the mixed bags that it has three or four different flavors, like the red <laughs> ones and the green ones and the orange ones and the and and the vanilla ones, I'm going to pick out all the vanilla ones and put the rest in the candy dish. <laughs> Here's all the junk from my care package that I don't want. The birds will eat it. A long time ago, I can't remember how long it's been, Reddit uh, reopened r slash place. Uh, The word place is simply the idea that you go on this giant canvas and you can place a single pixel and then it locks your account for a while. And the first time it happened, it was this weird cultural phenomenon that was unique to the internet. I can't think of anything like it in the history of ever. And then it disappeared and was gone for like six years and then it happened last year again well it's been a year and it's happening again it just opened up this last week did have you noticed 
I did notice, yeah, and I've gone on and looked at the canvas a couple of times, and I'm seeing a bunch of, of negative comments about it this time around. Mm, maybe it's too soon. Well, I'm seeing um, they've done something on the back end. Like, I've done I've done zero research into it, Ben, but, like, people are complaining that the admins have all the control somehow and that they're not mm. locking out the bots. And so somebody was, was complaining because, like, when it – when they turned our place on, it was like within the first couple of minutes, like an entire bar from one side of the canvas to the other, you know, tens of thousands of pixels was the German flag. Right. And, and so then the then, French did the same thing down the side since their flag goes top to bottom and it's striped down that side. And people are conjecturing like there is no way everyone was ready for this. This has to be bots. Hmm. It probably is. I mean, people queued up their bots from last time where they got all that practice they were fresh and ready to go uh, yeah and if you don't take any steps to prevent that from happening then it's gonna happen i'm interested in all the parts of this even the chaos that comes from the fact that people are are designing bots for it the only scenario in which i would just utterly and entirely lose interest is if the bots were so effective and so pervasive that it just became homogenous and unchanging then I'd get bored and lose interest. But yeah. the fact that there's this tension and these battles happening is its own interesting little microcosm of society in the internet. It makes me think about uh, graffiti out in the world because there are. it feels like there are some areas in urban areas where it's just this wall is basically up for grabs. No one's going to complain if you go and put some street art on it. And I'm, I, I've, again, this is something I'm thinking at the top of my head and I've got done no research but I'm interested in the in spaces like that where it's clearly visible, clearly public space, and clearly like people draw art on it and nobody cares. How much of the time is that covered in like criminal writings? Like, is it like uh, gang tags for marking territory or openly racist or hate speech? Versus how often is it just really well done street art that people respect as they walk past it? Hmm. Yeah, I think there are a lot of equivalents of what you just described on the internet. Some of the kind of things that people do that might be considered abuse under other circumstances are simply allowed because humans don't object to it. I have a great example. Uh, I was on a, an internet forum and there was a post that had a link in it that I would normally just ignore because it, it was obviously spam. But then right below it, someone had posted and said, hey, this is a known... A bot account that posts these spam links that um, are potentially dangerous. So if five of you will join me in clicking on it, clicking report and click these two sub things, it will exceed the threshold that alerts the auto moderators and this account will get suspended. And I thought that was a really interesting kind of like organized vigilante justice of the humans against the machines. <laughs> hey, there's a robot. Let's get him. Yeah. Not only that, but... Here's exactly what we need to do to get him. Well, and, and that's just smart on the person that put it up there because you can't just say, oh, we all need to report this and then it'll go away. You need to make it as as the, the barrier to entry needs to be almost zero to get anybody right. to do anything on the Internet. So I did exactly what that person asked. It was such a clear call to action and so easy to do. And I was like, I can do that. Hmm. There's a lot of weird things like people are weird. You you people, listeners right now, you're weird. Stop it. But like uh, the entire concept of Wikipedia should not exist. Like it doesn't make any sense. The Internet is teeming with all these people that are just uh, to just to just hate each other and then just just want to tear each other down. But then at the same time, it's also the largest repository of free human information that ever existed. 
I love that you brought up Wikipedia. I don't think I've ever had a chance to go on a Wikipedia rant, so I want to, Josh. Oh, no. So what did I just early do? In the, early in the history of the internet, some visionary, I don't know who and I should, but some visionary had this idea of like, we need to turn the model of how information is shared on its head. And initially, there was this really strong backlash from traditional academics against the idea of Wikipedia, an open source, free to edit online encyclopedia that anyone can contribute to and doing that democratizing it and making the barrier to entry very low allowed it to be effective in ways that traditional peer-reviewed controlled source uh ways cannot and solve a lot of the problems that things like traditional encyclopedias had one is they become a bottleneck and information can't flow fast enough. When with something like the idea of let's make a repository that has everything about everything, you can't do that with a traditional model. Yeah. I, I, I went to college in the early 2000s and I still remember writing papers and like the professors insisting. And getting the you, Wikipedia lecture from your teachers. Yeah. Like they're insisting you need to have 10 sources for this, this, this paper and not one of them can be an internet source because you can't trust what's on the internet. I'm like, how old are you, man? Like, what yeah. you you want me to go to the library and dig up a book that was written in 1963, and you trust that more than the stuff that's on the internet? I have, I have. It's been long enough in the existence of Wikipedia, the idea of open source, you know, anyone can contribute, kind of information sources that I have yet to meet a person that's such an idealistic purist that they don't use it in some way. Yeah. Uh, I use Wikipedia when I'm looking for information and resources and trying to research things. Now, I will say this. Anything that's essentially nonfiction, I take with a grain of salt. I take Wikipedia sure. as a starting point. Like, here's here's the cited sources. Okay, I'm going to go to those and look at what these are. But anything to do with pop culture – Wikipedia is the place and that is it might as well be the gospel because right? I have anybody that's passionate enough to sit there and write a 46 page dissertation about my little pony like and there's going to be an entire community of fans that are going to pick that to pieces like a murder of crows and it's going to be absolutely flawlessly perfect because the things that we obsess about are very weird. Yeah, it's great. It, it, like you said, I remember I used to have this problem where especially when I was a full-time missionary, we weren't allowed to watch TV or listen to radio or something. And and there would be this initial wave of something new happened in the news, in society, in geopolitics. And in the initial wave, you would find out what it is. And then after that, the updates were just kind of telling you a little bit about it without going back and telling you what happened. And when you come in late into that cycle, sometimes you have no idea what's going on. And there was no way to find out. But with the introduction of Wikipedia... I could always find out what the thing was. I could just go somewhere <laughs> I knew I could count on to catch me up to whatever it was. It's like the world is a reality show and you just stopped watching for a couple of years. Yeah. D yeah. Don't say yeah. That's ridiculous. What did what you were? You were just that entire time. You just you were completely removed from from the no, moral existence I, and you were a I, higher being like trying to bring the gospel out to people. Is that what this I, I was? I think we've talked about this before. There was a few <laughs> things like, for instance, while I was out, the, the Olympics happened in Atlanta, Georgia, in the United States. Like I didn't miss the fact that like Kerry Strug won a gold medal on a broken ankle or that someone bombed the Olympic Plaza or I didn't miss the finale of Seinfeld. You know, like I, I, I was still getting the peaks, but nothing there. It had to be a pretty high level to raise into my threshold. Nobody missed the finale of Seinfeld. Right. 
did did you know did you get an email from uh youtube saying that they're increasing the price of youtube premium yes that i just saw that yesterday it's like oh and it's this giant long email to be like hey we're charging you two more dollars and i saw that and i'm just like yeah inflation's been ridiculous of course you're raising your price by two dollars yeah you, i'm I sorry i saw that too and i was like do i care about a 17 percent price hike on something that i find to be pretty valuable Ah, uh, you can't nah. phrase you can't phrase in that I'm way. I'm okay because, with it. Listen, I'm an accountant. You can't get away with stuff like that because people love to throw these percentages out. Like, oh, this is a 17 percent tax or, or increase. Like, yes, that's technically correct, but it's also two dollars. There are different thresholds for what is relevant, and people like to pick the one that is the most audacious. And you you just did it on purpose. Like, you took the statistic and you said, oh, it's a 17 percent increase. No, yes, but it's also a two dollar increase. And when you phrase it that way, like one sounds ridiculous and the other sounds like, oh, well, okay, whatever. Yeah. What, what was it? Uh, um, uh, Doctor Who joke to like, is four a lot? Uh, dollars? <laughs> no. Murders? Yes. Yeah, exactly. That is exactly what I was saying. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> All right. I want to tell you about something that completely different. So over here, uh, the commercial support that exists to the military provides a few luxuries that we could get in the states just to kind of make us feel like we're at home and one is that they go to great lengths to make sure that whatever local theater they've set up on the camp that we're at shows first run movies so we can go out and catch the latest movies like somebody back home so this weekend is the opening of barbie and oppenheimer and for some reason they were both showing on friday night barbie first then oppenheimer second and so i was like uh, Barbie's showing late enough that I can like catch it after work and then I'll just stick around and watch Oppenheimer. And I thought, man, that's going to be weird. And I thought maybe I was alone. And then one of my friends posted on Facebook that he was going to do it and he wasn't sure if that was the right order to watch them in, but he was calling it the Barbenheimer Challenge. Oh. <laughs> I love this. I would be so in for the Bob Barbieheimer Challenge. Josh, it was like brushing your teeth and then drinking a glass of orange juice. <laughs> Yeah, the tone shift there would give you whiplash, I bet. Oh, man, it was crazy. Okay, both of all, but first of all, they're both fine. Like, neither one of them was an objectionable experience at the movies, but they're very, very different kinds of things. Like, one is this very serious, self-assured, historical perspective that kind of takes, it it was right along the lines of, like, Oliver Stone's JFK, where, like, examining a a cultural touchstone that's a controversial incident and examining controversial perspectives, and wow. Do it. And then the other one was Oppenheimer. Yes! (laughs) Yes! <laughs> yes! I was sitting here like, oh, he has to do it. He has to make this joke. Yeah, and then the other one was Oppenheimer. Okay, so in that respect, they both did that kind of – they both were – like Barbie, while it was kind of like this candy-colored romp through fantasy land with toys and people doing absurd, silly things, it was also a really serious look about – our relationship with our toys and fantasies and the influence of big corporations and our ideas about gender roles in society. Not expecting that from the Barbie movie, but now I'm excited to see it. Yeah, it was, it was intense. If you just go expecting to have a silly, funny time, you will. If you go and you're looking at like, what do, what is, when we were playing with toys as children and imagining that they were living lives and having accomplishments and stuff, and how does that affect me, what I've become as an adult, that's there too. It was really interesting. Okay, so I'm not going to lie, Ben. Like, we're probably going to see the Barbie movie because, like I said, we're just on a movie kick this summer. 
But I'm going there with the only expectation I have is I want Ryan Gosling to be a ridiculous caricature the entire time. That's the only thing that I want. You will not be disappointed, my friend. <laughs> Excellent. That's fantastic. Uh, Oppenheimer. So for those that don't know, uh, Robert Oppenheimer was a physicist that was early influential in the like late 20s and early 30s and trying to develop the ideas surrounding nuclear physics in the United States of America and was ultimately chosen to lead the Manhattan Project and develop America's first nuclear weapons that were used in World War II. The only nuclear weapons that have ever been used against humans in the history of nuclear weapons. And apparently after he invented it and realized that he'd lost control of it and the military were the ones that – and the politicians were the ones that decided when and how it got used, he became a very active opponent of the idea of further development of nuclear weapons. And because of that, and because of some embarrassment that caused a few political figures, there was a very public and very concerted effort to embarrass him, uh, take away all his credentials, and isolate him so that he didn't have any further influence. And the movie mostly focused around this kangaroo court that was held where his security clearance was revoked. Interesting. Okay. Because I, I love everything about the Manhattan Project just because they put so many smart people in such a small space. There are a ton of really interesting stories that came out of that. Like I think that's where the Fermi paradox was developed. And one of the lunch tables during the Manhattan project, there was they talk about that. There was um, a mathematician and I don't remember the, the name of this mathematician, but he classically figured out that the locks that the military were using on their filing cabinets had um, a, a very slight flaw in that you could be one number off either direction. It would still trip. And so based on that, he could um, – he, like if you forgot the combination of these locks, instead of having to have the military come out and drill it and get you a new one in like a week, he could usually crack the code in like an hour. With just using math? Using math. And he figured out the perfect algorithm to like, yeah, oh, with was... this flaw in the lock and I can do it this way and then I can figure it out in like an hour. That was not in the movie. But th- this is – this is two movies. One movie is the movie you were hoping for. That's about an hour. This is a three-hour movie. About an hour worth of it is just the execution of the Manhattan Project resulting in the Trinity test. That That's about an hour's worth of runtime. The other two hours is the trial. And, yeah. He, oh. You can make a whole other movie. Oh. Mm. Now, you've, you've kind of soured me that expectation. I wanted the whole thing to be math and engineering. Nah. Only, only about 30%. It's uh, it's still good. It's it's going to be the movie that's all the buzz in the Oscars in January. Of course it is. It's it, oh, it's an Oscar bait movie. Ah, oh, that makes all the sense. Did you all right? Uh, tangent. The one of the most interesting things I've seen about the Oppenheimer movie is the reel of the IMAX film. Have you seen that? Like what they have to plug into the IMAX machine to actually show this this film on on a projector? No, but I'm gonna look it up. Link in the show notes. Yes. So they they were uh, some art student on TikTok, of course, did a comparison. Like, oh, this is 35 millimeter film, and this is you know this millimeter film, and here's the pluses and minuses. And like this is one frame of an IMAX, and it was like ten times the size of any of the other uh, things. And it was very rich and deep, and it had all the, the sound encoded onto it. But then, then she showed the picture of the reel of the Oppenheimer movie, and it's like 13 feet across or something. Like, it's enormous. Whoa. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I'm definitely looking that up. Um, it, what One curious thing about watching movies in the 
in our theaters in order to copy protect them and because they're kind of putting them into un untrusted distribution channels is that they send them to the military on VHS still. Wow, really? Yes. So they they come to our theaters and we're kind of on a suboptimal screen with a suboptimal sound system and the player in the back is a VHS player. I wow. kid you not. Well, I mean, nothing will outlast the longevity of magnetic tape. And it's this interesting curiosity of technology where like we invented something that was good enough a long time ago and we moved on from it for good reasons. But there's also reasons to hang on to the things from the past. Just like if you have, I don't know, a cash workstation that's still functioning fine. Why replace it? Just keep using it. It's funny you bring that up. I just saw a video the other day. Apparently, one of uh, IBM's newest products, one of IBM's latest enterprise um, long-term archival storage products, is now magnetic tape again. And what? yeah, they're they're apparently so are they just having new advances in that arena in the technology. Like the 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 media is still the same. It's still magnetic tape, but apparently they're changing the control systems and the algorithms that they use to store it on. But they're saying that. Over hard drives, over solid state drives, which are still expensive for the storage, it is the cheapest and therefore most efficient way to store vast quantities of archival data is now on magnetic tape again. Wow. So that, that um, Star Wars movie, what was the one where they were trying to get the plans for the Death Star? Uh, oh, yeah, Rogue One. Yeah, Rogue One. So that scene in Rogue One where they go into the room where they've they've got mechanical machines storing <laughs> ver- uh, media is actually, we actually are headed there. Um, no, except the, the magnetic tape reels are way bigger than that. Like a magnetic tape reel is like three feet by three feet. Like what they were huh. pulling out of the, the, the wall in Rogue One was like a hard drive. Yeah. But the hard okay. drives, they're mechanical and they have failures and then they have to go through hoops to get the, the data off it. And so IBM's just like, you know what? What's better than having all these complicated moving parts that break down? Giant reel of magnetic tape. All right, Josh, a week ago... Um, on the 16th of July, 2023, was the men's final in the Wimbledon Tennis Championship that happens in Wimbledon, England. I normally wouldn't talk about this kind of thing, but other than there's a story I want to tell you that happened. So the final was between Novak Djokovic and Carlos Alcaraz, uh, the, the number one and number two ranked players in the world. And it was epic. It was five hours of, of thrilling tennis. Ultimately, Djokovic lost and a lot of significant things happen like Alcaraz is 20 years old Djokovic is 36 um this would have been Djokovic's 24th major victory which would have been the most all time but because Alcaraz won he didn't get it so is he going to keep trying or is he going to retire who knows um he'd won Wimbledon the last four years in a row so for the fact that this young guy beat his, uh kind of dethroned him is also significant and <laughs> you and I have talked in this podcast in the past about how like baseball is unique in that all the parks are different shapes tennis is interesting in that the dimensions of the court are very exact down to like the centimeter however the four majors are played on three different surfaces that have very different properties for how the ball ricochets my wife uh, was a tennis player in high school and she's a big tennis buff and so we still watch tennis occasionally on the tv and we watched the first part of the alcarez um awesome javoric match okay i can't say the guy's name Djokovic so wimbledon is the only tennis major that's played on grass courts uh 
And so it's kind of fascinating that it carries this tradition back to the origins of tennis in early medieval England and France or wherever. I don't know enough about that to give a history lesson on it. (laughs) But um, they also have very strict traditions about like the fact that they require the players to wear all white. It's the only, you know, event that has a dress code like that. And the whole thing kind of has this mythos surrounding it. So much of a mythos that while I was in England for three years, I did a little bit of research to find out if it was possible for me to be able to go to Wimbledon during the two weeks of this major tennis tournament when it was going on while I was there. Oh, no, you need season tickets booked well in advance. Only rich people go to these things. I That was my thought. And I mentioned it to one of my British friends, and they said, now, hold on, let me tell you something. And they explained to me that in this kind of backlash against this idea of only the nobles get to do things, at Wimbledon, they set up this democratic system of, of sorts where they withhold every day 500 tickets and fix the price on them at a very low amount and don't make them available to they make them available to the general public and the only way you can get them is by being there in person oh that's cool okay so i said well what's the catch and they said well because of that it creates this demand problem and so people queue up so far in advance that you know it's hard to get in i said so what did they do they said well there's this park across the street outside of the grounds of Wimbledon where they allow you to camp and you queue up your tents in the line so that you sleep overnight and then wake up first thing in the morning, clean up your tent, and then where you were in the tent line is where you are in the line to get tickets for Wimbledon that day. I love everything about this. I, I love the the lining up. I love the queuing overnight. I love the the professional attitude that they have where, oh, go ahead and clean up your tent. I know I'm in line after you. I will wait. Oh, respect the lines, people. So this whole idea captured my imagination so perfectly that I went to my wife and I said, honey, we've got to do this. Like, let's find somebody to watch the kids. We'll of get course a tent. you did. Of course you sat in a tent outside of Wimbledon and like queued up. That's, of course you did. Let's go have the, this quintessential British experience and go to this storied, historic major tennis tennis tournament and because i also happen to be a bit of a geek for really adoring this uh, venus and serena williams who were playing in in wimbledon that year i i picked a day when we'd be able to go and see venus or serena play so we packed up a backpack got our tent got everything we needed ready the right clothes to wear and all that kind of stuff and went to wimbledon and got there and it was just like they said except that so many people had queued up that i think our place in line was like 527th or something like that <laughs> you didn't get there early enough uh I, no i think only the first 200 tickets go to center court and then after that you can pick anything else you want but the, but the center court tickets are exhausted i think we're like 250th in line okay so be, because we didn't get there early enough we weren't able to get tickets to center court so i wasn't able to see serena williams play Oh. however okay. However, we were still able to get, I think, like 50 pounds each, which is really cheap, and get into the grounds and then go to any match that we wanted. And there's a lot of other courts that aren't as storied and beautiful and magnificent as center court, but we still had this great experience. So we slept overnight in the park, got up, got our tickets, went in. All that was very low stress, surprisingly. It's not uh, It's not like waiting in line outside an Apple store to get the newest iPhone where you're like sleeping on concrete. I love I love the imagery of I'm going to look for this now whenever I see like the crowd at Wimbledon. I love the idea of like royalty and like rich people and like pop stars and like all of these celebrities sitting next to dirty, grimy, unshowered people. rando people that yes. slept in the park. 
oh yeah, I've been homeless yeah. for the last forty eight hours. I'm totally next to it's a to contest. Freaking, when yeah. you see them in the audience in center court, be like, that guy slept in the park last night. You could tell. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Okay, so we get in, and the traditional um, the traditional food of Wimbledon is strawberries and cream. So I went to the gift store, got a souvenir. We had strawberries and cream. And outside of center court, there's the you've seen it if you've watched the coverage. There's this giant steep hill that almost functions like a stadium. And on the side of the outside of the tennis stadium, they have the giant screen TV where you can sit and watch the match that's happening inside of center court. And you can cheer along with them. But because it's on, shown on TV, there's almost like this delayed sound of the people outside the stadium cheering from the ones inside. Yes. So if you can also listen for that on the coverage, if there's a really exciting play that happens, you'll hear this delayed sound of the cheering from outside the court. So two thumbs up. Excellent experience. Would recommend if you ever go to England during Wimbledon and you don't want to pay an arm and a leg to get good tickets, you can sleep in the park and get in for low cost. That's a classic like travel thing. Like if you're going to vacation in Britain, like that's like something that you should do. Yeah, it felt like this really interesting slice of society that wasn't just paying, you know, $1,200 for a ticket and going in and watching a tennis match. It was like this whole cultural experience where I was part of this big group of people that were the real fans. Are you listening, Ticketmaster? This is how you set up a ticketing program where people feel good about it and they didn't pay an arm and a leg. So, Ben, have you ever – I actually have a bat of magic for us. And the idea is I experienced something in magic that I knew existed, but I never had experienced it myself. And I'm I'm excited to share it with you. Okay. Go have ahead. You, I, have, I'm intrigued. Have you ever heard of Spell Table? Mm, no. No. No, it just the that mm, makes me think that you've heard of it, but you don't know. You just want to. There's the a YouTube channel that's something like that. It's called like Spell Slingers or something like that, and it's just where like some some celebrities that are famous from other games get together and play Magic and stream it. Oh, you really haven't heard of Spell Table? Okay, no, I don't know what you're talking about. So Spell Table is a product that I think Wizards of the Coast put out, where um, you can train. Like you log into it, it's a website all in your browser. And it accesses your webcam and your microphone, and then you aim your webcam down at your playmat, and then you have paper cards and you play paper magic, and then it's like a it's almost like a Zoom call or a video teleconference with other players that can join, and you get a, a video screen of their playmat, and you can see the cards that they're playing, and it's live voice chat, so you can sit there. So this is can, a magic version of Roll20.net. Yes, this is. Huh. You can play paper magic with people online, and. At, I've seen it on the internet before where people will, would like record the spell table like right, output do it in like, an ad hoc kind of way but you're talking about something formal that's designed purpose built for this it is purpose built for Magic Gathering and I didn't huh. know how robust it was until we experienced it yesterday so uh, you last tried night, it? last night my son and I went to our uh, lo- our local game store to play Commander because that's what we do on Friday nights right and so we played a game of Commander. Um, there was a new person that she sat down and we played. And, like, we were teaching her some things, but she was pretty good and she was a lot of fun to play with. And she says, hey, do you mind if we play another game? I would really like my husband to play with us. I'm like, oh, sure, that's fine. And then she gets her laptop out and her cell phone and starts doing these things. I'm like, so um, is he coming? Or and she's like, oh, no, he's in South Carolina, but we're just going to do it over spell table if that's okay. So she said that, like, it was just common knowledge that this was a thing? Well, it, it, she had done it before with him and some other people, so she had experience with this program. 
I say she had experience in that she used it before. It was clear that I knew more about it in the first five minutes once we got started. But and, and so here's the thing: what happened is she starts setting up, and then she set she opened up her laptop, and she started the spell table like instantiation on the laptop, and then she sent a link to herself uh, on her phone. And then she clicked the link on her phone and then the phone logged in on the website and the phone became her camera. And so she was one of the players on the spell table uh, was her phone and she just got a little tripod and set her phone up over her over her playmat. How long did all of this take in real time? The setup took longer than it needed to because we have like one people weren't ready to actually do it. And two, there was some like they were having some trouble like figuring out like, how does this work? How does this work? But um, it's clear that if both parties knew how to use it and they were ready to fire it off, you could get it up and running in like five minutes. Wow. Well, and I there's think the thing bright is like, ideas like this live on a razor's edge where like if just one or two things are take too long or are too awkward that it the whole thing will fail. She, uh, while she was setting it up and working with her husband to try to get him onto it and they were having technical difficulties and I go, hey, can you send me an invite and I'll log on on my phone that way he can see what I'm doing. We don't have to move your phone around to show the other playmate. She goes, oh yeah, that'd be great. I had it up and running and fully set up in like five seconds because okay. it's like, oh, it's a link. Oh, it's a Zoom call. Turn on my camera. Nope. Switch it to the other side. Okay, great. Okay. I don't want to see everybody. I just want to see mine so I can see what's going on. Okay, perfect. Yeah. All the buttons were exactly where I expected them to be. All the camera controls, all of the microphone controls. It all used of the, Zoom? It doesn't use Zoom. It's its own proprietary okay. thing, but it's all free. It was it was all free. And I, oh. I set my phone up on a tall deck box that I had, and it was aimed right down at my at my play mat, and it popped up on her screen on the laptop. I'm like, yeah, it, it was perfect. Everything's fine. Wow. Well, was, you didn't what, even need, like, a mount rig I, or something? Well, I've got a weird phone, and so that helped. Yeah. Like, I, I just had a tall box, and I waited. It has a like, low fine. enough center of gravity that you can prop yes. it over the edge. Yeah. Exactly. And so this whole thing was like, oh, this is just a, vi- a video call that people have decided to use for magic. No. No, it isn't. Because it adds extra interface, just enough extra interface to make it perfect for Magic. For one, Mm. it has life counters associated with each player that only that player can control. And so I could click up and down on on the little thing and show what my life total is. And that pops up for everybody on the spell table screen. Second... Uh, you can tell it the turn order, and you can tell it whose turn it is, and it will automatically focus. It'll go full screen on that player for their turn. So if you have multiple players, and if you have the turn order in there correctly, it'll just it'll constantly be showing where the action is. Third, and this is the the thing that really sold it for me was the killer at, feature. The killer feature was the optical character recognition because at any time you could click on one of the cards that was on this camera randomly and the program would recognize it as a card, search its optical database or whatever it did, and it would pop up the the, the gatherer text, the image, and all of the rules text for that card on the side so you could zoom in and read it and see everything. That's awesome. This would, it, guy, would it get, I don't know, like a Chinese, a Japanese one? Oh, no, no, but he just had, like, because it's, it's I, on a web... I, I know, I immediately went to the boundaries of what it's capable right. of doing, but... Well, but... Uh, he had a playmat, and he was playing cards, and they were, like, kicked off at a weird angle, and sometimes they had glare or whatever, but I could... And they were kind of small, because it's on a webcam. He's, he's right. doing, like, a 720p, but I can't see right. what this is. But if I didn't know what the card was, I could click on it, and it would give me the full... Like, off the side, I can still see what he's doing, but it would give me the exact card that it was and all the rules text for it. Wow. Wow, that feels like it would cover the gap, like you said, of, of the fact that it's small and far away. Yes. I already have that problem in a game of Commander when there's like four players playing and I can't see the like card to the guy's <laughs> right-hand side at the other end of the table. 
And this is this is probably why I enjoy Commander more than you, because I remember every magic card that I've ever seen or read. <laughs> and so it's easy for somebody to say, oh, I play this. And um, the person we were playing with actually like, looked at me funny There's a one simulation time. of that happening in Josh's brain <laughs> right now. Well, and this is the thing is, um, so we had the laptop up with, and we just, I told her, just full screen that to him so we can see what he's doing. And then we'll just put him in the turn order on the table. Like we moved the laptop to where he was in the turn order. And he would say, oh, I'm going to play this. I'm like, oh, crap, that's going to give all those guys indestructible and plus plus one. And everybody would look at me like, yeah, it does that. How did you know that? I'm like, do you all not know what the Night Lord does? I mean, come on. <laughs> so, yeah, I had, yeah. yes. So while Spell Table was great for everybody, I had, I was able to, now I'm just bragging, but I was, I had, I was maintaining a virtual image of what the play state was. Yeah. I wouldn't even consider to try this because of all the barriers that you mentioned of just the difficulty of the the quality of the image, the potential for glare, the the lack of, of visibility and problems with understanding and all those things. So here is my um, my proposal to you, sir, because I saw this and I'm like, this works way better than I thought it would. I want to do two things. One, I want to have an experiment with you. I want to do a one-on-one game of nonsense magic just to get the like, oh. Just That's so why you, you asked me if I had a magic deck here. That's why I asked you if you had a magic deck there. I want to see if you can get it to work. And then okay. second, this is going to solve our commander problem, sir. This is going to be like, you've got kids like spread to the four winds that have commander decks. I'm like, let's sit down and let's play a game of commander on spell table. There's no reason we can't do that. We've only yeah. ever played half a game of commander together. I want you to try to imagine a, a game over this uh, spelltable.net or whatever it is, .com, uh, without the mental capacity of remembering every card and what they d- can do in, from their position on the table. On your computer, you have the option to set what the screen looks like. So you can focus on just whoever the active player is, or you can have all four play- tables shown at the same time. And whenever you click on a card that is in the visibility of the camera, the thing will tell you what that card is. There How is, is that no possible because it's, because it's augmented it's, reality. It because it's tiny on your screen. It's still putting out whatever the full image that that webcam is, and that's on the back end. And so they can recognize the card from its art or its name or whatever their magic they're doing, and it will tell you what the card does. Okay, let me ask you this: Could I turn that on and not have a remote player and just have that functionality? Because sometimes I want that in a regular game of Commander. <laughs> like I have a, op- a laptop open next to me and instead of asking that guy what that thing is and what it does I could just click on it on my screen and find out if he had a camera over his play space yeah like you, you uh-huh. would like his camera like so what you're gonna uh, so you could log your camera want, in as the uh, only I don't, player I don't want remote capability I want augmented reality <laughs> just ask him to see the card Ben no like he'll slide it over to you, you can no everybody's it. doing their thing I just want to be like oh, what was that again and just click on it and see the, the gatherer text because usually in a, in commander people have the foils with the foreign language and the you know, and the old versions and you're it's playing nonsense. like hardcore commander players man like all my decks cost like $80 or I hate less. commander I hate, oh no 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 this is no 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 you're doing the thing this is like people that say, I hate video games, or I hate books, or I hate wine. No, you haven't found one that you like. You had a bad experience, and that is, you're anchoring on that. That's what you're doing here, sir. All right. I'm willing to give this a try. I'll see what I can do. I don't have a good quality webcam here and any kind of rig that would hold up my phone or anything like that. There's, there's some problems. So uh, t- log in your phone and your laptop together. Set the phone as just like no camera, just the view, just to view the play space, and then use your webcam to aim your laptop down at your play space or something. 
I don't know. Man, there's technology. Like there's so many options. Like I don't know. All right. I want to change the subject without changing the subject. And that is the fact that you told me that there's a thing that you can now do online that I wouldn't have imagined you could do online makes me wonder what are the limits of the internet? Of, the of limits connect- of the internet. I mean, obviously, as soon as the internet was invented, we figured out ways to have sex over it, and that's getting improved all the time. But now you say you can play Paper Magic the Gathering on the internet? Like, what else do we do <laughs> or like to do that I didn't think was possible over the internet that you can also do? Like, yeah, we, we played chess and poker over the internet a long time ago, but, like, okay, this reminds me of a book I read as a kid. It was called um, The Apprentice Adapted by Piers Anthony. Did you ever read that series? Yes, I did. So there was a whole society built around this this scientific this future scientific thing called the game where they would go and you could it could be any competition of anything in life. And at one point they also revealed that their futuristic sci-fi world is overlaid on top of a uh, high fantasy world and for some reason they're trying to play the game between the denizens of the fantasy world and the denizens of the sci-fi world and they figure out a magic apparatus on the fantasy side and a high-tech apparatus on the technology side so that they can play a match of ping pong against each other i i I, i'm i'm over here reeling that you've read this series of really niche books that i read in middle school that's crazy yeah and and so that this is this is that like are we going to get to the point where oh, oh that just reminded me there's a YouTube channel where a guy who invents things and he made a version where you could go online and play a simulated version of pool but it had a robot that would execute what you told it to do and so you would actually play on a real table but on he could be in the room playing against you and you could be on the internet playing against him and it worked almost seamlessly. Yeah, that was the YouTube channel stuff made here. Big plug yes. for that guy. He makes great really channel. Cool, awesome. Oh things. man, yeah. great video. And so he had a physical pool table, and you could play online. And like, yeah, his system would replicate your shots on the real table, and you could play them. And it, but you could play real pool with him. But now I'm realizing there's no limits. Like you could, you could do anything. <laughs> My favorite part of this whole conversation was when you said, "Yeah, the internet is great. Of course, we figured out how to have sex on it. But you're telling me I can play games on the internet too? Mind blowing. <laughs> no, not games. <laughs> the kind of games you never thought you could play on the internet. Like we're like, well, you can play ma- paper magic in person and you can play digital magic. But no one ever said, but can I play paper magic on the internet? Can I play paper magic digitally? And the answer is yes. Yes, you can. Wow. Nerds will always find a way to hook up with other nerds without having to go out of their house, Ben. Like, this has been a thing for a long time now. What are you reading right now, Josh? Actually, Ben, right now I'm taking a break from the Dresden Files, and I'm reading Invisible Women by Caroline Criado Perez. Oh, me too. And listeners, we'd like to invite you to read it with us, because on the next episode of Bad and Magic, that's the book we're going to discuss. Invisible Women by Caroline Criado Perez. Um... Get ready to grapple with your assumptions about the world around you when it comes to understanding and appreciating the other half of humanity. I will say this because I want to say this now, like, and I will probably bring it back up in the book review, but I want to say it now because if anybody does want to join in the book, they maybe they'll have the same experience that I did. So like my wife is a feminist and I, I, I also believe in all the feminist ideals. I don't know if I would ever go pick it for a feminist cause, but I'm, I'm right there with her. Okay, I believe all these things. I believe that there is built in bias into our systems that we've constructed. That probably says more about what you think about the efficacy of picketing. But yes, agreed. Uh, I, we'll, we'll, we'll come back to that, I guess. But um, 
I so here's the thing is I'm going into this book already agreeing with her premise. Like, yes, I believe this exists. Please give me the meat and potatoes. I want all the details, all the examples. And something about I couldn't put my finger on it, but something about the verbiage or her tonality because it's read by the author, something just something about the way that she's conveying the information to me, I started to feel defensive. And like there's a couple times early chapters I had to pause and like really like why do I feel this? Why is she making me feel this way? I agree with all of her points. Why do I feel like I need to like defend myself right now? And I, I'm not sure what that was. I couldn't put my finger on it. You reading it a second time, maybe you can enlighten us then. But just listeners, be aware. Maybe you'll have the same experience. Maybe you won't. I'm not sure. But it's a good book and she's not mean. She's not calling out the reader for being part of the problem. She's just doing her due diligence as an academic but for maybe this is my assumptions. Maybe this is maybe she's challenging things in my brain I didn't realize were there. Maybe that's what it is. Ah, great. So, listeners, if you want to have your your ideas about gender norms and the importance of women in history and in society and in your life and in your language and in you, the, everything around us, join with us in reading this book. All right, for our main segment today, Josh, you and I promised last time that we would talk about all the Spider Mans. All the spider, all the spider people. It, now, the very first thing we have to say is like in the most recent movie to come out, uh, Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse, they reveal how deep the Spider-Verse actually is. And there's no way in, in heaven's name that in the even if we spent every episode for the next hundred episodes of Bad at Magic, we could touch on all of the Spider-Man. So immediately we need to kind of bound what we're going to talk about. I, I love that. It's like, hey, we said we'd talk about all the Spider-Mans, but we're not talking about all the Spider-Mans. Even if we said all the Spider-Man movies, we still got to put an asterisk on it because in 1977, a Spider-Man movie came out that went to theaters and they released two sequels that went straight to VHS. We're not going to talk about those. Uh, Spider the um, Oh boy, I can't think of his name. Tom Holland version of Spider-Man was first introduced in one of the Marvel Cinematic Universe where he was only a supporting character. And we'll mention those, but we're not going to talk about those three or four movies that were, you know, team Avengers style movies that had Spider-Man in them, but he wasn't the main character. We're mm -hmm. going to constrain ourselves to four franchises. The four franchises are the Sam Raimi trilogy that came out in 2002, 2004, and 2007, Spider-Man 1, 2, and 3. The Mark Webb two films that maybe was going to be a third, uh, Amazing Spider-Man <laughs> and Amazing Spider-Man 2. The home trilogy with tom holland as spider-man that came out in 2017 2019 2021 and the spider-verse soon-to-be trilogy that came out in 2018 this year and hopefully will the next one will come out next year i think so they've already those, delayed it to late next year but yeah those 10 uh, movies those yeah. 10 movies is what we're going to talk about today so we're gonna we're gonna explore them, their ideas, the production, where they fit. We're gonna rank them all and then uh, see where we differ in opinion. So how do you want to start? Well, I was gonna give a complete plot synopsis of each of the ten movies so that way the <laughs> listeners know where we're at. You're laughing uh, like I'm not being serious, Ben. You be well, quiet for the next half hour. Go get a drink. Here we go, listeners. Buckle up. Okay, I'm you want to take in chronological I'm, I'm, order? I'm not doing that. All right, that's. I'm, we're not doing the plot synopsis. Can we? Let's just talk. That's just, yeah. I think chronological is the best. I think we can talk about the movies in general, our feelings upon like a second, third, or 18th viewing. And then maybe we can flow into, um, after we've talked about all of them, our pluses and minuses for them all. Maybe then we can rank them kind of in order and then talk about why we think some are better than the others. All right. So okay. let's go back to 2002. 
Ah, uh, 2002. My first uh, uh, cinematic experience with Spider-Man. Like, I got to go to the movies. I got to watch... Uh, now all I can think of is Tom Holland, but it's not Tom Holland. It's, this is... Um, Oh, the actor's name, Peter Toby Peter Maguire. Were you Thank still you. in high school at the uh, time? I was still in high school at the time. Yes, two thousand. No, wait a minute. No, I wasn't. I graduated two thousand one in high school, so I was uh, I was in college when the first Spider Man came out. Was it so, in a military theater? No, I didn't. I oh. never. There was a military base at the academy that's co located, but I never went there. I never went to like the base proper. I always like left and went out into the the civilian world to do, to go see stuff. And Spider-Man was, I mean, it, for, <laughs> so it was good. I liked it. It was Spider-Man, right? Um, it wasn't until all the other Spider-Mens started coming out. And like, so we, we also rewatched a lot of the Spider-Movies in the last couple of weeks. And it wasn't until rewatching it now through the lens of, you know, what good movies can be that I realized the 2002 Spider-Man isn't great. It, would you, could you consider that that might be a bit of presentism? I think uh, it was is. it was yeah. groundbreaking in a way that it kind of opened up. You know, you can go back and watch Citizen Kane, which is considered by most <laughs> to be this landmark movie in 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 cinematic history because it established things like flashbacks and complicated narratives and all those kinds of things. But to actually go back and watch it now, mm, not great. It they was actually, important. Th- there's a scene in the middle of Citizen Kane where there is a cockatoo overlead on the screen that does a loud caw and then disappears forever with no explanation. And the filmmaker has admitted that he put that in the movie because he thought people might be falling asleep at that point and he wanted to wake them up. <laughs> His actual words. Yeah, not great. But it was important. And I think the first Spider-Man movie is kind of like that. Like, we'd had some attempts in the past at comic book movies. And I think, let's talk about that now because I want to talk about that for a minute. What was it that paved the way and led to the glory that is, you know, the 20-some-odd movies in the, in the Marvel Cinematic Universe up until recent? Mm. And I, th- I posit, some people trace it back to Blade which happened back in the mid-90s with Wesley Snipes. That was this comic book franchise that showed that it was possible to make exciting comic book movies with protagonists and interesting storylines and all those kinds of things. So you can make a case for Blade. You can also make a case for some other attempts like the Hulk movie made by Ang Lee, which wasn't great, uh, or the X-Men franchise by Fox, which has been uh, really uneven, you know, with um, Hugh Jackman place, and Patrick yeah. Stewart. Yeah. Um, but I posit... And, and, while Iron Man was the first movie technically in the MCU franchise, I think this movie by Sam Raimi, Sam Raimi, Spider-Man, was the one that really paved the way. So if we're going to go with this, the, the historical perspective, um, I think all of the movies that you've talked about, what they have in common was really solid comic book stories. Like the plot already existed. The canon existed. It was a compelling story, and people realized that. And I think that's why the filmmakers gravitated towards, like, this is a prepackaged plot, start to finish, with costume design, set design. Like, it's all here. Like, this is a a movie in a box, just add filmmaking. And I think that's the problem. I think what we're seeing is a struggle for filmmakers to adapt their source material into, uh, into a film. Because there's one thing to tell an epic story and a plot over the course of, you know, 80 comic books where you have all this time to develop all the aspects of it and explore every little nuance and character detail versus I've got an hour and a half to two hours to to tell a story that in a compelling way that audiences will walk away satisfied. Hmm. 
Interesting. I'm thinking about that now because some of the examples I gave were people that had a long history of filmmaking and then did a comic book movie. Uh, Ang Lee's a great example. Ang Lee famously declared that he had never read a comic book, but I can totally turn this comic book into a movie, and it failed spectacularly because— Yeah, and it had a few panels where it showed, like, frames uh, around the images and stuff like that, but it really was—it was just—it was was weak fan service. It wasn't even fan service. It was clear from the beginning that Ang Lee had no respect for um, what the source material did. Like, he saw, like, oh, it's a comic book. no. It's a compelling story with characters, and you are not taking it seriously enough. So that's where I think Sam Raimi was different. I think, yeah, he was a filmmaker, and he was famous for his horror movies. Uh, and and you could see more so in Spider-Man 2, but you could kind of see his roots as a horror filmmaker with his interesting visual camera angles and things that he does. Um, but in casting Willem Dafoe as the Green Goblin and in following through some of the just key core canon elements of what constitutes spider-man you know he's he makes snappy comebacks and quips and you know he has this downtrodden life and everyone's a little bit larger than life in their expression of their emotions and the conflicts and those kind of things i think he nailed all of that it it felt to me true to the spirit of the comic books i read as a kid that is definitely at the core of the spider-man character and all of the good spider-man movies that we're going to talk about the ones that I like the most are the ones that are are most attached to that core conflict that exists in Spider-Man. Spider-Man's conflict is not with the supervillains. It's with himself as the superhero versus himself as Peter Parker. It's like trying yes. to live this this dual life. That's if that's what your story is focused on and how those intersect and how they conflict, most likely you're going to get a good uh, review from me because that's what I want Spider-Man to be. Hmm. Man versus himself. Exactly. Yes. There's also man versus man, and that's one of the compelling things about this particular movie, and that he had this this adult mentor because Peter had kind of been deprived of adult members through some tragedies in his past that uh, where he'd kind of keyed in on Norman Osborn as someone he'd want to emulate, be admired by, be respected for his scientific achievements, those kinds of things. And then when that relationship went sour, he had to rectify his feelings towards the adults in his life. It's funny as you say that, but I always I saw that the other way around. I saw like Peter Parker had like his relationship with Uncle Ben, and that's really like the the core memory for him. And then Willem Dafoe feels like he intersects with Peter's life, and every time he does, Willem Dafoe's like, "Man, I wish you were my son. You're so much better than my son. My son's such a pos over here. You should be more like Peter." I feel like Willem Dafoe adopted Peter Parker way more than Peter Parker adopted Willem Dafoe. To the extent that at one point it's like, Peter, I've been like a father to you. And I wanted Peter to go, whoa, whoa, whoa. You are like my friend's dad that <laughs> I see really sometimes. You're really overstating the case yeah. here. I, th- I think you have miscategorized our relationship. Okay. Yeah. Well, but then they also were kind of bringing out this sibling rivalry kind of dynamic that created with Harry and Peter. Regardless, I think it was um, groundbreaking at the time. And maybe you, what you said, it doesn't quite stand up. I still enjoy going back and watching it. Uh, uh, it's fine to me now. I It was a good movie. I'm not going to lie. Of the Sam Raimi trilogy, um, uh, it's that one or Spider-Man 2 with Doc Ock. That's the, that's the best where they kind of like – but uh, uh, the first one I felt like um, they did spend a lot of time with the story. Like I don't know. I, I feel like the slider was just a tiny, tiny bit too much on the um, – uh, the plot side and not enough on like 
because we still want to see Spider-Man be Spider-Man. We still want to see uh, the the acrobatics and all the craziness, but I like the CGI wasn't there, so there's a whole lot of really wide shots of of mm. still really bad CGI Spider-Man doing things and some wire work and that kind of thing. And, and then a ridiculous the like bouncing on the balloons at the at the parade like uh, like and that's probably presentism still too. Like they did the best yeah. they could at the time, but like some of those scenes are like, okay, that's let's rethink this, guys. Yeah. So there's one other thing I want to do before we move on to the next one, and that's let's talk about the magic systems of each one. So I've each mentioned this one, on the pack. It's the same. They're all the same. No, it's no, it's, no, it's not the same magic system. Give me a sec. Okay. I've mentioned this in the past, but like the early origin of Spider-Man, they were the the pinnacle of like mysterious technologies they could imagine was that there was a spider that had been exposed to radiation and that had conducted random <laughs> genetic modifications on the spider that then were transmitted to the human, altered his genetics and made him into this mutant with useful powers. I think that's even a little bit of retconning because like the original one was, oh, it's a radioactive spider. And everyone was like, yep, radiation is essentially magic. We don't know how that works. So he has okay. magic spider powers now. I I, I concur. So then the modern versions, particularly 2002 one, it was like it was a genetically engineered spider that bit Peter. Uh, but it was in kind of a vague, like they bred them or something kind of way. And is it, at each iteration, it's become more like this is a genetically modified spider where they did it on purpose to enhance certain characteristics. Yes, because with our understanding of, like, as we understand science more and more, we realize that radioactive spider would be... Like, this is a comic book joke. It's like, oh, look, a radioactive spider. Like, I saw this comic online the other day, and he had deliberately had the spider bite him. And then in the last panel, he's, like, got all these, like, weird growths and tumors on him. But he's right away. He's like, <laughs> I'm Spider-Man. <laughs> yeah. So this idea has developed over time as our understanding of the underlying technologies and ultimately, you know, biology of life of insects and humans has developed over time. However... Another part of the magic system that's different in this one than all the others is the source of the webs. So I'm sure at some uh, planning meeting, I'm sure at some planning meeting, they sat down and they're like, how are we going to do this? And the, Sam Raimi decided to abandon the canon and make it so that Peter genetically could expel webs from his body. Now, you can make a case for that. Like if he's going to be genetically modified and do things, why wouldn't that particular abilities of spiders also be one of them? Hashtag not my Spider-Man. Like I was mad. Like we've talked about this before. I was yeah. mad about that fact for 19 years, Ben, because that's ridiculous. And that is not in no version of Spider-Man. Is that how it works? It, my biggest problem with, with Spider-Man always is the fact that his webs seem to be supersonic. <laughs> when they need to be. And other times they're just not. Right. Uh, another part of this magic system is an old standby in comic book canon, and that is the bad guy having some type of superhuman serum. Of course. And in this yeah. case, it also makes him like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde crazy. So this is something that the, the Sam Raimi trilogy, I think, um, uh, lost or they, they didn't have access to because they weren't part of the MCU because they didn't have rights or whatever to all this other thing or because they just didn't explore it because this was probably before Marvel became part of Disney. But there is like like running deep in the bones of all Marvel canon is everybody's trying to find the super soldier serum that made Captain America. 
And this is the same thing that Oscorp was doing. It's like, oh, yeah, we're working on that same serum. That's that one guy figured out on his own during World War II. And everybody's right. been trying Norman to Norman Osborn is at the heart of all this, just kind of like how Hank Pym is at the heart of all the, like, growing and shrinking things technologies. Yes, exactly. And so Norman Osborn is trying to recreate the serum from Captain America. And this is like, oh, what's the soldier modification thing? It's like, no. Hey, remember that thing we had in World War II? We would shell out all of the money the government has to have that back. Yeah. Okay. So that that was our examination of the magic system. You could see there will be some nuances we get in into the other movies. So Spider Man on a budget of 139 million made 825 million dollars at the worldwide box office, which is about six times what it cost, and it kind of guaranteed and greenlit the way for a sequel. Not just so a sequel, in, but other comic book movies. Like the the industry was like, oh, this this did very good. Look, there's there's some return here. Yeah. So then in 2004, you know, two years later, they'd come out with a sequel um, to a lot of hype and a lot of, uh, uh, you know, interesting speculation. Is this going to suffer the same kind of problem that all movies do when we have a first one that's successful and you start pumping out sequels out of Hollywood? Is it just going to suffer in quality and and go downhill? I think Spider-Man 2, arguably, I enjoy more than the first Spider-Man of the Sam Raimi trilogy. Let's put it that way. Um, I think the character depth is explored better. I think the, um, yeah, the interactions between Doc Ock before and after his transformation, the explanation makes no sense, but like the character change is um, dramatic enough that you, you feel this, this, this disconnect, this connection, this almost bipolarism, the real Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde kind of thing. Yeah. So Alfred Molina kind of goes through this transformation playing Dr. Octopus as like this really, this, benevolent scientist with good um good motivations but then something interferes and only exposes his selfishness and and self-interest also with some potential ai stuff going on it's kind of weird but this conflict where peter also looked up to him as a mentor and then something happened and it changed it and transformed their relationship and there's it's this really good human conflict at the heart of the movie and then some really interesting stuff happening as well in the classic like you said man versus himself conflict of peter trying to figure out how do i protect my family and ones that i love but also make a living when i can't reveal my abilities and the world kind of getting down on him because it's hard to be spider-man and i i think this is a good example of when you have a good filmmaker, a good cast and crew that care about the property and get a bigger budget, what good things can come out of that. Absolutely. So this, they, this was they had two one. Yeah, they had two hundred million dollars to make this movie, and it has in it what I think is one of the best set pieces in all of comic book cinema. And that is when when Spider Man battles Doctor Octopus on the um elevated train as it's going through the city. Yes. Just just a classic comic book battle where he's protecting the civilians and the bad guys disregarding their life and Spider-Man's using everything in his power to try to stop him and also protect people and it complicates the problems that he has and it's just so tense and well filmed and well shot and it's it's classic. Even the ending, you know, when he's expanded every bit of strength he can to finally stop the bad guy and now is helpless and then pass you know random people help him and save him. It's fantastic. I appreciate the sentiment at that. That's the part where it takes a dip for me because it, it, yeah, it makes sense that the civilians would help him. It doesn't make sense that they would help him in the way that they would help a messiah. 
Like it, it, that, <laughs> that imagery got a little heavy handed for me, but I, I appreciate the sentiment. Like if, if a couple of guys was just dragged him on and somebody started doing triage, like, Oh, I'm a nurse and started doing that. I think that'd have been more true to life. And less Josh, of the, I'm supposed to be the one to make messianic metaphors. And I didn't even pick up on that one. Are you serious? They crowd like he's unconscious. If you find it, all right, so Ben, I'm going to ask you this question. If somebody falls unconscious around you and you're just out in public doing your thing, uh, you have, what do you do? Do you, A, lay them down, cradle their head, and then perform triage and then get somebody to call for medical attention? Or two, crowd surf them slowly across the room that you're in and then gently lay them down so you can so just, I don't know, worship them. Like, it was just so weird. He was precariously perched on the front of the subway car where he'd stopped the train. They had to bring him into where it was safe. But okay, I'll let you have that one. <laughs> All right, yeah. The only downsides I have to Spider-Man 2 is sometime when they were setting up, they were going through the script of the writers in the room at the conference room. They're like, hey, so do you think anybody in our audience will know how physics or computers work? And somebody went, nah, that's fine. Okay, great. That's just gloss over all of this. Like, uh, I'm sitting here like trying to enjoy the movie and one part of my brain, like the science officer running the ship in my brain just won't shut up about that's not how fusion works. Yeah. Now, Spider-Man 2 made slightly less money at the box office than its predecessor. And you can almost feel the corporate greed kind of coming to life in between when 2 comes out and when 3 comes out in 2007, you know, 2004 to 2007. I like that. The film, like, oh, filmmakers, we gave you the opportunity. You screwed the pooch. You made less money. Now we're going to do things my way. Yep. Yeah. So. Okay. in those three years, they produced another movie. They increased the budget another 30%. They increased the number of bad guys in the movie by, two, you know, by 200%. Uh, 200%. And it just, it was a disaster. It was Josh, so bad. It was, it was so bad, Ben. It? it was so cringe and it was so disjointed. And like the only good guy in that whole movie was Sandman. Like, they, they set up the bad guy as the most. Uh, um, Even Peter was a bad guy in that one. Yeah. Like, the only person that I cared about was Sandman. Like, oh, he's just doing what he can with his superpowers. They brought, they brought Gwen Stacy in, and she wasn't even likable. <sighs> that That's the real tragedy, because Gwen Stacy plays such a pivotal role in the canon. Go watch any of the into the, the Spider-Verse movies. Like, Gwen Stacy's a big deal. I love, like, I'm skipping ahead, but I love the little line. Like, yeah, when in all the universes where Gwen Stacy falls for Peter Parker, it doesn't work out great for Gwen Stacy. I love that little line in uh, Spider-Verse. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, you're hinting at something. Let's talk about it for a sec now, because the Spider-Verse did something that, that you've, you've kind of been talking about where they codified this idea that the reason we keep retelling the Spider-Man story over and over with its common elements of like a an everyman who gets these powers, which make him have this dilemma, like, what do I do with all this power now? And then the Uncle Ben speech of with great power comes great responsibility. And then Peter maintaining a secret identity so that he can protect his loved ones. And then the tragic happenings that cause all these antagonists in his life and him trying to get through his life despite his problems and struggles. And even though he's super, he's also like us. And all the these, these story elements are good enough that we can just strip off the stripping the trappings of it mix up a few details start it over again and tell the story again and somehow it's fresh so what spider-man did was it canonized its meta commentary like we yeah we keep retelling the spider-man story because we love the spider-man story 
And then they incorporated that retelling of the story into the story itself. And uh, it's almost a fourth wall break by the writing crew in a way. And I just love it to death. Um, I can bookend that with they do the same thing with Deadpool. Like Deadpool is essentially Spider-Man, but for but like the the anti-hero Spider-Man. I'm not going to dive deep into Deadpool, but I want to. Deadpool is my favorite character. But it's just a back to Spider-Man. Yes. We keep retelling these same stories and they're always like a little bit different each telling. It's almost like they, they canonized like the different artists, the different art directors, the different writers, the different storytellers, the different versions of the movies that came out. We canonized all of that into the Spider-Man story by creating the Spider-Verse. And then what's so great is that in a handful of these movies, we get to see that play out in, in cinema. That happened, obviously, that's like the, the core thing that's happening in the Spider-Verse trilogy. But then also in the last uh, Home trilogy with Tom Holland, No Way Home, that is the MCU version of canonizing this multiversal retelling of the same Spider-Man story. Yeah, I guess so. Now, in the third one, so we've got Eddie Brock as Venom, which was in all the comic books I read as a kid about Spider-Man. Um, that's kind of a throwaway, and I tell for Grace may have been a miscast there. I don't know that, that Tom Hardy is right either, but whatever. All that aside, then you've got Thomas Hayden Church as Sandman, and uh, uh, I can't think of the actor, but Harry Osborn as the you know reprisal of the Green Goblin, and all this is happening. And then there's Peter getting the Venom the Venom suit and having his like identity crisis and. Uh, and and, and it, it was just a big mess. So they spent $258 million. It was the most profitable of the three Spider-Man movies. And it was fascinating to see this thing go down in flames, it, having made more than the others. But as a factor of its uh, budget, it actually made less than the other two movies. Hmm. I, there was one scene in that that, that stands out to me uh, for you're talking about your cinematography on your on your elevated train fight. I really like the fight between Green Goblin, or it might be Hobgoblin in this one. I'm not sure the canon name for for yeah, Harry the Osborn. Harry Osborn, thank you. I also can't think of his name. Uh, but he fought Spider-Man in like a really narrow alley. Do you remember that scene? Yes. Like it was barely wide enough for them to like be in there and like not have their shoulders touch. And just planning out the choreography of how this was going to go back and forth. And like the camera was almost almost doing drone shots before drone shots were a thing, like following one of the characters as they went through and kind of they're almost jousting in a way back and forth with yeah. uh, how they were interacting. I think that was a really cool, well thought out fight scene. Yeah, and of course, after the fact, when other comic book movies have been more successful, all the people involved look back on this with regret and say, oh, if only we'd been able to pull ourselves together and spit out a fourth Spider-Man movie. But I'm not going to retcon any of that. There was a lot of controversy. They started production on a fourth Spider-Man movie with Sam Raimi, Raimi and they and they um, cast um, John Malkovich as Vulture. Ooh, that would have been good. Uh, but it was kind of like that weird version of Sonic the Hedgehog that came out in the Sonic the Hedgehog movie trailer where just there was this huge backlash on the internet. Uh, Everyone was okay. like, uh, I don't know, John, John Malkovich, he's not a good vulture. And it can just – the ship was going down and that was just another Let's just know, go ahead and pull chunk the of iceberg. Right yeah. <laughs> so that was 2007. It was another five years before we would see another Spider-Man movie. And, of course, there's everything we're not probably not going to talk about with the, the ownership of the intellectual property – but Sony rebooted and hired filmmaker Mark Webb and Andrew Garfield as Spider-Man and started the, the franchise over again. I this do time have under to, the 
Amazing Banner. Uh, the Amazing Spider-Man. I do have to put this plug in because this is actually very important to the Spider-Man canon. Like if we're talking about the meta commentary, like you mentioned, oh, there was all this stuff going on between Marvel, Disney, and Sony. So here's the thing. Back in the day, a long time ago, Marvel was going bankrupt. They needed money desperately. And so they were selling their IP for pennies on the dollar. And that's when Sony snapped up a bunch of their IP. This is where they get the X-Men rights. This is where they get the Spider-Man rights. And part of the intellectual property agreement is that the rights will revert back to Marvel if Sony doesn't use them every so often. Like there are time triggers for them to keep this intellectual property. And so they have to keep pumping out content they yeah. were bumping up against the Spider-Man expiration date if they didn't put out a hmm. Spider-Man movie, which I wonder was, if it was five years. I don't know if it was. I don't, I don't know how long it was, but that was part of the contractual agreement. Sony had to put out, and now they've established Spider-Man as a multi-million-dollar franchise, right? So they don't want to lose the rights that they got for pennies on the dollar. And so, even if it's a bad Spider-Man movie, they needed to produce something. That's weird. You, you talk about this from 30 Rock, how like there's things that can happen in the business side of producing a film or something like that that could be so overwhelming that it then the success of it doesn't matter. And it sounds like that might have been the case here. It doesn't. Yeah, it's like, oh, hey, why are we spending $100 million on a movie that we're expecting to fail? Uh, because it's going to make sure we keep $200 million intellectual property rights. Right. Okay. So... Amazing Spider-Man comes out, they reboot. I think they wisely decide not to redo the whole like Uncle Ben thing. And they just kind of go straight into the idea that Peter Parker's father was a partner with Dr. Kirk Connors and they came up with some revolutionary uh, genetic engineering thing in the field of biotechnology that Dr. Connors was motivated. But for some mysterious reason, Peter's father disappears and they they don't know what happened to this critical link in the formula that could be used to potentially regenerate uh, living tissue. Yeah, and so more of that is explored in the second movie and it gets fleshed out because they just like do this like, oh, the whole plot is going to be about where Peter's dad went and then Peter gets spider powers and we just don't care about that anymore. It's like, <laughs> oh, yeah, that, that doesn't matter. We forget about all that. Like, oh, we'll pick it back up in the second movie. And the idea yeah. is it's this altruistic scientist working for the, the soulless mega corporation. It's like, oh, we are working on biotechnology to heal people and cure cancer and all these degenerative diseases. Oh, but they were going to use my technology to create super soldiers and sell it to the government. Man. And then, of course, as, a, as an ethical scientist, your only option is to torch all of your research, grab everything out of the lab, and try to vanish off the face of the planet. I feel like there's other whistleblower things you could have done. But again, evil mega corporation. I get it. So you recap that in a way that felt kind of cynical, but I think it was perfectly cynical in that I, when you as a filmmaker have a story that's so caricature-y and so surface level, it's not going to, it's not going to resonate with people. They're not, they don't feel, they don't connect with the characters in the conflict. It's like giant mega, giant evil mega corporations stopped by mysterious good guy and that's it. All right, we're going to skip ahead for a second to the second movie because that's where we pay off the whole Peter's dad like storyline. And there's a scene at the beginning where they're on a private jet. Somehow he chartered a private jet without the mega corporation finding out. Yeah, right. Good luck with that. And a guy comes out of the, the cabin and he sees the, the pilot is now dead. And this guy's clearly going to assassinate both of them after ha- like, but he's trying to put up, just shoot him. I don't get it. Like this, this is the dumbest assassin ever. And then this the scene culminates with them in this 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 uncontrolled dive into the middle of the ocean in this private jet and this assassin is still trying to force a gun at peter parker's dad and all i can think <laughs> watching this movie is like this guy 
is the most dedicated assassin I have ever seen. Everyone on this plane is going to die. Dude, you just need to bail. But he's still there making sure. He's like, no, I saw it with my own eyes. I'm not doing the, the what is it, the bad guys from the Hercules Disney movie, Pain and Suffering. I'm not doing that where they assume everything's going to work out fine. I want to see him lifeless before I bail and report back to my evil mega corporation. Yeah. Okay. But. But. The, the the second movie of the Amazing Spider-Man trilogy, the Amazing Spider-Man trilogy, suffered from the same problem as Spider-Man Three, where like it felt like the corporation just got involved. It was the highest budget of all the Spider-Man movies. Really? Um, yeah. Uh, Amazing Spider-Man Two's budget was two hundred fifty million dollars, which, which was similar to the budget for Spider-Man Three, and okay. they spent it on special effects. I think. Uh, yeah. And 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 again, brought in three bad guys, which really seemed ill-advised. You got Electro, uh. and, and you got Harry as the Hobgoblin, and then you got Paul Giamatti as the Rhino, and then there was the Assassins and just evil corporations and so much going on, and it was just nonsensical. However, I went uh. back and watched this one recently with my kids, and like you said, the resolution of the story plot thread with Peter finding out his dad's origin story actually kind of worked for me, and the scene where. Peter ends up in some precarious situation, some high building for some reason, and has to try to stop the bad guy and rescue Gwen Stacy at the same time. And because of his choices, she dies. That one also worked for me. And I think it pays off really well in the new movie and the home trilogy where he gets some closure on that part of his story. Yeah. Andrew Garfield he, playing. Yeah, they, they, Andrew Garfield redid the the whole dive and trying to save the girl thing. But there was other Spider-Mens there to take care of the other half of it, so he was able to save her this time. Yeah. Well, I will but, I will say that movie was ridiculous from start to finish, but that that scene where Stacy, like the, the web catches her, like, and you feel like it's just in the nick of time, but then she whiplashes the back of her head into the concrete and like Oh, my whole family, like watching this ridiculous movie, making fun of it the whole time. All of us we went, did the oh. same thing. All of us went, oh, and like, then you like just felt so bad for Peter because like you were so close. I love that your family did this, Josh. I just felt so connected with you. <laughs> so when um, Far From Home was about to come out and we saw potentially that the other Spider-Man would be in there, I realized that I hadn't taken the time to go back and show my kids the old Tobey Maguire and Andrew Garfield movies. So leading up to the come out of, of No Way Home, uh, my family sat down and watched all those movies. Not like all at once, but you know, over the course of like two weeks, we watched all, all five of them. And we had a good time. And yeah. We, you know, had some great moments, and then the kids had all the canon fresh in their minds, so that when we went and watched the new um, um, Tom Holland one, it, they had every, they had all the plot points fresh in their mind. And we did the same thing you did when we watched Amazing Spider-Man Two. We were, we just mocked it mercilessly like the whole time because <laughs> it was kind of ridiculous. <laughs> all right, so I love. Uh... One plug, this just gets out of the way. Emma Stone, ah, masterpiece. Chef's Kiss. I love Emma Stone and everything she's ever been in. Yeah, Um, fantastic as Gwen Stacy. Great choice. Now, here's a hot take for you, Ben. Are you ready for this? Yep. I think Andrew Garfield is a a better Spider-Man than Tobey Maguire, but he's a worse Peter Parker. Ooh, great hot take, Josh. Yeah. He was going for the whole I, – I don't even know how they got away with this. So, like, he's a cool kid, like a skater and, and like, yeah, like well-adjusted. He's, he's, he's not a nerd photographer for the yearbook club and the outcast. No, he's just edgy and he's angsty and he's, he's a loner. And, like, that's not what Peter Parker is. 
Yeah, and then they cast um, what's his name, Martin Sheen as Uncle Ben and um, Sally Field as Aunt May, and they both felt out of place. Like I, I never bought either of them. It, yeah, every time I saw Andrew Garfield trying to be Peter Parker, I felt like, dude, you're either one way overacting, or two, you're being way too angsty. Like Peter <laughs> is just like an upbeat, like positive, trying to be a good guy, and he's just downtrodden. But I've come to respect. He was a good Spider-Man. Like he was snarky. He was like when he like he he saw the kid that was getting bullied and picked on. He helped him fix his wind turbine. Was talking to him and like like got down on his level. Like you are a great Spider-Man, Andrew Garfield. But you're a terrible Peter Parker. Never take that mask off. Plucky remarks. He made one of almost one of my all-time favorite bits of internet pop culture. So there's this there's this um video that just looks like a street security camera where there's like a guy that looks like a homeless guy pretending to be Spider-Man on the side of the street with a coffee cup for people to put money into. And he's like hanging upside down and somebody walk and he's doing his thing and somebody walks by and puts some money in his cup. And then he crawls down off the wall, picks up the money and then pulls back the mask and it's Andrew Garfield. And he looks at the money. He's like, yes, yes, that I remember that. And look at the show notes. Yes, that is that is one of the treasures that the internet will hold forever. Yeah. And Andrew Garfield, I think, is just a gem. I've I've come to appreciate his acting. So when I went back and watched it, I really had an H of G for him where I was he, he was making a, a thespial decision to portray Spider Man the way that he did. It didn't always work, but somehow it played even better into this idea when they brought all of them together in No Way Home. Yeah, he was different enough that it he felt like his own unique character. Yeah. Um, I will say now, that. Uh, oh, oh, sorry. You want to go ahead? Do you know enough about the canon to explain the difference between Spider Man and the Amazing Spider Man? No, I don't. Unfortunately, okay. I'm sorry. Right, um, I think that was just sorry. a different. I think it was just a different run of comics where they 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 do this all the time. It's like, oh, let's reboot. Let's tell the story a little bit differently with a little like updated a little bit more. Flesh and out some of the things. We need to do something to signal to our readers that we know that this is different. Well, I think like in the Amazing Spider-Man one, like him getting bitten by a radioactive spider and getting the spider powers was like three panels. I think that was like the whole thing. And so then when your your fan base after years is like clamoring for you need to flesh this out and tell us more of the story, then you get to reboot and then like really like focus in and zero in on different things. Um, okay. I think that's what that was. I have to play a bit of catch up on the magic system stuff. So in this Spider-Man universe, still he gets the, the climbing powers and the spider sense and the quick reaction time. But he doesn't get web shooters. So he, of course, uses his scientific powers to create it. And that's it's played out to good laughs in the um, No Way Home movie. Uh, I also skipped over uh, Cold Fusion in Spider-Man 2 and now we've got uh, uh, Electro I guess it's some kind of experiment in Oscorp that happened that turned it wasn't guy... an ex- Electro was ridiculous Electro was an electrical engineer that got electrocuted and then fell into a tank of electric eels like he died three times which somehow gave him electricity powers that makes no sense uh, Dr. Connors is just more engineering, but gone wrong. So he becomes more of the lizard than just changing human DNA to regenerate. And what else also am I his, missing? His, all right. So his, yeah, he was missing an arm and he was trying to like, lizards can regenerate. That's put lizard DNA in people. And it worked and it gave him a lizard arm, but also gave him an, uh, a big Abdullah Ablongada for all of you Waterboy <laughs> fans out there. And so he just became this, he became Killer Croc. And for some reason, he got in his head, you know what would make everything better? If everybody was lizards. And then I wouldn't be so weird, I guess, was his plan. 
So he was going to turn the whole city of New York into lizards, but hang on, his formula only ever works temporarily. He has to keep taking it to stay a lizard. So he was going to turn the whole city of lizards for a little while? I don't I don't so, get it. So we've got alien symbiotes. We've got massive advancements in technology. We've got um, self-regenerating proto-humans <laughs> crossed with other species. But the one that I think is the most implausible is Dr. Octopus's arms. That's like, the one that's kid, most implausible. I I could just never handle it. Like just the the there just the massive amount of energy that would take, the flexibility of it, the intelligence of it, the coordination of it all. It just I couldn't handle it. We've got all right. All we got right. flying. We got flying speeder sleds. <laughs> we've got alien symbiotes. We got regenerating lizards. But the one I couldn't handle was Doctor Octopus's arms. All right, all right. Here's my thing, man. Like I, I, I don't disagree with you, but I just put Sandman one place higher on that list than Doctor Octopus. I agree with the. All right, these arms look like they weigh 800 pounds. Your legs would just crumple underneath you. Like I'm with you there, but. When do you charge them? Where's the power source? You would need cold fusion to run these arms. Yeah, no, I'm with you. But Sandman, think about Sandman for like five yeah. seconds. Like there's nothing makes any sense with Sandman. No, it, no you're right. It, it just, I'm not even going to try. Have, all, right, all right, I've got to take this tangent for a second. Uh, have you ever seen the how it should have ended for the Spider-Man 3 with Sandman? Mm, remind me. I all have, right, so but I the, forgot. Listeners, if you haven't seen how it should have ended, go watch those. They're they're hilarious. There was one. There's a scene with the Sandman where he falls into the pit where they're going to do the experiment. Like, and they they show the scientists in the bunker. Like, oh hey, I just got an uptick in the like the the silicon content or whatever. It's like, oh, it's probably just a bird. Let's keep going. And then they do, and then he turns into the Sandman. In the how it should have ended, one of the scientists comes in from off camera and he goes, "How about you go out there and check? How about you take five seconds, get up from your desk, walk out there, and make sure it's a bird before you turn some guy into a supervillain with sand powers." Yeah. <laughs> nice. Okay, okay. Now, now with that so, out of the way, are right, you going to keep going on the magic system or Well, no, no. The Mark Webb okay. franchise of Amazing Spider-Man 1 and 2 kind of reached critical mass and had the same kind of meltdown as the um Sam Raimi versions. If we're talking about the Mark Webb films, I again, it goes back to I liked Spider-Man. I liked Andrew Garfield better than Tobey Maguire as Spider-Man. And all of the scenes where he's Spider-Man, I like those better. In all the scenes where he's Peter Parker, I like it less. It's and a good hot take. The films in general, I think the Mark Webb films suffer from pacing and editing. I feel like both yeah. of those movies, well, the first one especially, The Amazing Spider-Man 2012 especially, felt like there were parts of it that like, oh, and we just don't want to tell this part of the story. And you just get these smash cuts that go at breakneck speeds that advance the plot. And then in The Amazing Spider-Man 2... It felt like they filmed eight hours worth of movie and had to cut it down to the runtime that it was, which one was already kind of long. And two, it yeah. created these really disjointed scenes that like, why, why are we, why are we still caring about this plot thread? It was, yeah. oh, I was an intern at Oscorp for 15 minutes. I know how to reboot this electrical grid. You need me. Okay. Now hang on a second. Then, then, like, oh, right, let's take a mental stretch. I, I looked at the plans once. I know how to reboot this entire electrical grid. You know what, Emma Stone? I'm going to give you that. Where, <laughs> where you lose me, where you lose me is when you're in the building and the reboot is just a covered switch. You open the switch, you pull the lever, and the system reboots. Emma, you just needed to tell Andrew how to do that. He could have done it on his own. Yeah. Yeah. 
It wasn't I, even hidden. It wasn't even a back room. It was in the dead center of the console, and it was five times bigger than every other Switch that was there. And there's it's a, a name reset. for those kind of plot holes. Like, for instance, in the movie Saw, when he has to cut off his leg to get the cell phone across the room, the distance from his hand to the cell phone is less than the length of the saw that he uses to cut off his own leg. <laughs> yeah, so it's like, oh, no, my only option is to use this tool to extend my reach. Obviously, that's the first thing that you would do. Yeah, there's a name for those kinds of plot holes. I don't I don't know what to call it, but that's an example. Um, so all in all, the, the, again, this one just kind of went into the same kind of meltdown as the previous tri- trilogy. They were potentially looking at releasing a third one in 2018 that never materialized. And then the Marvel Cinematic Universe was starting to pick up speed. They teased Sp- pick up speed. They teased Spider-Man in uh, Captain America Civil War. And then we get... They didn't tease Tom anything. Ho- Hang Tom on a Holland. second. You are not going to gloss over, like, the emotional meltdown that I had in the theater in Civil War when Spider-Man showed up out of nowhere, okay? I'm just saying it wasn't his movie yet. It wasn't his movie, but I still peed my pants. Like, it was... (laughs) Like, like Tom Holland did a backflip and stole Cap Shield in the moment, and... Uh, Like the five minutes that Spider-Man is in Civil War is the best five minutes of Spider-Man that we have. That is Spider-Man. I I think fans everywhere were in violent agreement that Tom (laughs) Holland as as Peter Parker and Spider-Man was just a breath of fresh air and a revelation. Like everything you wanted Spider-Man to be and become. In that fight scene, we get to see Spider-Man almost casually outperforming like all of the other superheroes. And like, he's like a 14 year old kid, which is fantastic. He has all of the best lines in that fight. And it's just great. The whole movie, Sam Wilson, like acknowledges, like he's webbed up and like Spider-Man's like, are those carbon fiber? That's really great. You know, there's usually not this much talking and you can see (laughs) Spider-Man also go, Oh yeah. Okay. You have a metal arm. That's so cool. Hey, have you seen this really old movie? Uh, Empire strikes back. Good Lord, Tony, how old is this kid? Like, <laughs> Spider-Man was the best part of that whole thing. Yeah, yeah, and it's, that movie's fine. Let's, while we're at it, let's talk about all of them. So, Spider-Man, I think, is a character in the Spider-Man universe, has this kind of eternal longing, not just to be himself, but he wants to feel like part of something bigger than himself. He wants to feel like he's contributing. That's one of the ongoing ethics of Peter Parker is that he wants to contribute in some ways he can't do that all by himself as a kid in Brooklyn so he wants to belong to a team that can help him find things to do to help well in the canon of the movies he got recruited by Tony Stark to go do this amazing thing and then just this is every uh, person that you've ever met where they you can tell that they peaked in high school or college and they just want to live that peak for the rest of their lives this is what Peter Parker's doing Peter is constantly just like, I fought Captain America and it was amazing. And he just wants back in. I put me in coach. I'm so ready. Yeah. So obviously when Earth is invaded by an alien species and, and a megalomaniacal warlord trying to extinct half of all living life in the universe, you're going to need to bring Peter Parker on board. So, of course, he's there for Infinity War and uh, Endgame and plays a minor role in those. But again, he's not wasted. Like, he has the same kind of moments of snippy dialogue and brings an element of lightheartedness and youth and fresh perspective to every scene he's in. Here's something that you might not know about, but um, 
in the canon of the comic books, Spider-Man and Tony Stark are are very close. Like uh, Peter Parker doesn't does an actual internship and gets a job with Tony Stark, and Tony Stark knows his secret identity, and Tony Stark makes him the Iron Spider suit and all of those other things. And so the fact that they wove that so seamlessly into the movies and the MCU that there is this bond and connection between the two characters, just I I ah. Uh, like just emotions pour out of me. Like they're being so true to the source material and I love it so much. Oh, and, and Robert Downey Jr. And Tom Holland just nail it. Like of all of the, the loving connections, whether it be, you know, actual um, romantic or just familial, that feels like the most resonant and genuine in all of the MCU is the Peter Parker, Tony Stark relationship. First of all, Robert Downey Jr. is is the best Tony Stark that we have ever and will ever have. So he is Tony Stark as far as I'm concerned. Right. Um, but Tom Holland was such a good casting job. And for so many reasons, like I've talked about this before, but one, the fact he's that athletic, he's athletic, he's yeah, he's an yeah. actual teenager. And so when he's being teenage angsty, it comes across very genuine because right. as he's opposed a to teenager. adults pretending to be in high school. <laughs> As opposed to this high school in the Tobey Maguire movie full of 35-year-old people walking yeah, down hallways. Like, uh, that's it's terrible. But it's also, cringy every time they do it. Uh, I Tom Holland, like, they, he didn't know. He's British. He's one of those secret Brits. He didn't know what it was like to be in American high school. So for the before the movies, they sent him to American high school for a couple of months. And then, like, one – I told you this story. One girl caught on, like, why are you even here? You're so weird. It's like, oh, actually, I'm not really attending school. I'm just learning what it's like to be in American high school because I'm, because I'm Spider-Man. And she didn't believe him, which is fantastic. Second, I love this little anecdote, too, because he was auditioning for Spider-Man for Civil War. And he was, like, before the audition happened, like, he saw that they had a bunch of – like, they were doing, like, stunt rehearsals or something off to the side. And they had a bunch of pads laid out. And he is a gymnast. Like, he has all these, like – physical like he's he's a physical guy he can do like back handsprings and, and junk himself as the actor and he talked to a guy on the side he's like hey all this, this is all for the stunt guys and this is the stunt coordinator he's like well yeah this is for the stunt guys we're not using he's like do you mind if i like do some flips or whatever as part of my rehearse uh, audition for spider-man and the guy goes he they, I, I saw an interview with this guy the stunt coordinator and he goes well for insurance reasons i have to tell you that you can't use any of this stuff because you're not part of the crew and you're not covered by the film's insurance but you are auditioning for Spider-Man. And so Tom Holland took that exactly how he should. And then while everybody was coming up and reading lines, Tom Holland like did like a couple back handsprings and then a standing backflip and then started delivering his lines. <laughs> awesome. Oh, I haven't seen that. I'm going to see if I can dig it up and put it in the show notes. Okay. So this is where things start to get interesting because I said that they teased Spider-Man in Captain America Civil War, but that's exactly what happened because there was still this corporate divide where the, the MCU was happening under Disney, but Sony still owned Spider-Man. So there was this interesting corporate cooperation happening where they let this character Spider-Man be in the one movie and then the next year Homecoming comes out, which is actually a prequel to what happened in Captain America Civil War. Homecoming? No, no, no. It happened after that. The they beginning, go back and tell they they tell the story of Vulture where he came from, which was the events right after the first Avengers movie. But then immediately after that, we get an eight year time skip that shows the Vulture is up and running and doing his thing. And then it's um, we get the videographer like the opening scene is Peter's cell phone footage of the events leading up to Civil War and then coming home. So right. like it takes okay. place immediately after the events of Civil War. Got it. Okay, so we go back. We introduce the character Vulture, cast for um, Michael. Um, 
I can't think of his name. He's the best bat. Keaton, Michael Keaton, who's the best Batman, was great as Vulture. Um, in this movie, so so they nailed the high school thing. Like, just absolutely, it, that just feels so snappy, high school. Felt right. It wasn't just like a bunch of adults pretending to be in high school. It actually felt like kids. You know, the 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 TV channel that was run by the kids and the interactions between the classmates and the awkward romantic connections. Everything was just Chef's kiss, spot on. Good. High school stuff. I love my favorite character in the whole movie is the the gym teacher that just does not care. He was standing on the wrong side of the video that Captain America was playing because Captain America pointed to the other side of the screen. You're a gym teacher. And then the gym teacher waved. And then after the video, he turned it off and he goes, yeah, all right, you heard Cap. Pretty sure this guy's a war criminal now, but whatever. Let's do some sit-ups. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so this movie has one of my favorite scenes in all of comic book moviedom. It's the reveal when Peter gets in the car to take uh, MJ, his prom date to prom, and realizes that his girlfriend's dad is his arch enemy, and they both come to the realization at the same time. I'll tell you what, this is, my my son hadn't seen the movie in years and years, and we sat down, we watched it, and like he had the same reaction that I did the first time, like gasped audibly, like, no, and I'm like, you forgot, didn't you? He's like, I did. I'm like, yes, that's the guy. Peter knows he doesn't. And then he starts cluing in like, okay, thank you. Thank you for having a villain that's smart enough to recognize. I feel like I've heard your voice before in the handful yeah. of interactions. Like like everybody would, right? Yeah, smart villains are way more compelling than dumb ones. <sighs> Again, this is another time you need to go watch the How It Should Have Ended. Because there's that scene where he sends his daughter into the prom and then he pulls a gun and put casually puts it on the on the on the seat and starts talking to Peter. It's like right. you saved my And this is this is a believable villain. Like, you are trying to stop me and shut down my entire business, but you saved my daughter. So I'm going to give you this opportunity to just walk away. There's no reason that we have to continue to be enemies. Like, okay, in the Tobey Maguire movie with Green Goblin, Green Goblin captures Spider-Man, paralyzes him, and has this conversation where he's trying to recruit him, and then mysteriously disappears for another whole act of the movie, okay? That yeah. is an unbelievable interaction why the villain would let the hero go at that time. Now we have this one where it makes perfect sense in the He's context of the situation. Dropping them off the prom. Dropping off the prom and understanding the dynamic between the two where the villain has motivation and reason to let the hero walk away with the knowledge that he has. Because oh, yeah. it's, it felt so real. Now again though, how it should have ended was perfect because they did like five versions of that scene. Where he's like, I will kill you, and I will kill everyone you love. I love Liz, your daughter. Are you going to kill her? And then it just stops him, Michael Keaton cold in his tracks. And then there's another one where he's like, I will kill you and everyone you love. And Spider-Man just grabs his hand. He's like, oh, I have super strength. Do you have super strength? No? That's weird. <laughs> Help! This adult is threatening me with a gun. Like, it, it's just, there's so many ways that Spider-Man could have gotten out of that. But again, it, it yeah. downplays the emotional tension of the scene. Yeah, that's a problem for writers is how to take these fantastical magic systems, and they are magic systems, and then create human drama that's compelling to us as a viewer, reader, or listener. They did it. Like that scene alone, yep. like that scene where Spider or Peter Parker realizes the bad guy is his girlfriend's dad and that he like he's a bad guy objectively, but he's not oh, yeah. a bad guy. Like, you know what I mean? Like, that scene made me feel things. I was like oh, yeah. shocked and dismayed and there was suspense and I felt tense and I didn't know what was going to happen and I wasn't sure what I really wanted to be. Who? And here's the yeah. thing, like it is it is completely legitimate at that moment for Peter Parker to walk away. Like, I feel like the rest of the movie, if Peter just walked away, like, you know what? He gave me a clear opportunity. This is out of my reign, my league. 
all like Iron Man told me to leave this alone. He's going to handle it. And and let's be fair. Even if Ultra did get away with that jet full of whatever he was trying to steal from Tony Stark, Tony Stark still would have shut him down in like five seconds. They're on totally yeah. different levels. Yeah. But it's it still Peter could have taken the offer and it would have been fine. It would have been a completely legitimate course of action. And I wouldn't have I wouldn't have blamed him. So. Is there anything new introduced in the magic system here? I guess there's the Marvel Cinematic Universe of the introduction of alien technology that's what's enabling Vulture's powers. But Peter's pretty much the same. Bit by a spider, spider powers, uh, what, you know, science-invented web shooters, that's Spider-Man. Yep. I love that we don't have to redo the whole Uncle Ben thing. Like, we got it. We know where Spider-Man yeah. came from. We don't have to do that. Yeah. And so we just get we just get core Spider-Man. Uh, spoilers. This is by far my favorite Spider-Man movie. This is the spider-man movie in my opinion spoilers for our top 10 list okay <laughs> now something interesting happens here and that that hasn't happened previously and that's there's something else going on and that is sony animation studios was also working on miles morales as spider-man and that comes out the year after this and in between this one and its sequel can we talk about tom glover for a second uh tom, donnie yeah, glover. donnie glover uh, yeah the- go ahead the actor in Don, um, Donald Donald Glover that was in Homecoming, where Spider Man. Did you catch his webs name? His hand to the trunk. Yeah, yes. Yeah, he, go ahead. Go ahead. Do the oh, whole thing. I can't. Yeah. You, okay. Yeah. So Donald Glover has a longstanding history with Spider Man in the weirdest Didn't way we possible. Talk about this already on the podcast. I think I talked to you about this. I don't know if we've talked about it on the podcast. Okay. I'll, go ahead. I'll go through it as quickly as possible. While Donald Glover was a part of Community, there was this I there was rumors that they were going to make a Miles Morales version of a Spider-Man movie, and the internet petitioned very very hard the way the internet does to make Donald Glover Miles Morales as Spider-Man. And during one of the episodes of Community, they're showing this scene where he's waking up out of bed and he's stretching and he's wearing Spider-Man pajamas. And this is during that episode came out during this entire internet craze thing. Then uh, Miles Morales comes out. It's an animated movie, and in Uncle Aaron's apartment. Uh, in the background on the TV, you can see he's watching that episode of Community with Donald Glover getting out of his what? bed, stretching in the Spider-Man pajamas. And then in Homecoming, uh, Donald Glover makes a cameo as – do you did you catch his name of the bad guy that he webbed his hand to the trunk and was talking to him and interviewed and figured out where the the sale the weapon sale was going down? Yeah, it was Aaron. Um, Aaron Davis. Aaron That's Davis. the name of the uncle that died that was the Prowler in the, in the Spider-Verse movies. And then to put the cherry on top, in the latest Across the Spider-Verse trilogy, we have Donald Glover as Aaron Davis, live action in the Prowler suit. Like that they they wove Donald Glover somehow into the canon of Spider-Man as Aaron Davis slash the Prowler. And it's great. Yeah, I, I, I think the Internet can go wrong with those kinds of things. But in this case, it just rewards the faithful viewer and maybe someone that even participated in that. You can feel like a little part of influencing this universe. This was okay. you, like if you didn't know any of that happened, it doesn't matter. It doesn't play in. But if you're part of the like the Internet culture that did this, it feels like such a victory. And it's so cool to see all these little things that happened. So. A lot of these movies we're talking about, this is the first time we're talking about them on the podcast, but we've talked at length about both Into the Spider-Verse and Across the Spider-Verse on the on here. Uh, so we don't I'm have to go out, into the depth on those. Right. But they're interlaced with um, the Home trilogy, Homecoming, Far From Home, No Way Home. So 2017 Homecoming, 2018 Into, 2019 Far From Home, and then Across just came out this year, two years after No Way Home. It's weird the way it goes. I don't... <laughs> 
it's hard to say what their intent is with the animated ones. Like, do they intend for them to kind of be influenced and part of the current Marvel Cinematic Universe, or is it just something else? I think those are wholly owned by Sony. I think we get the Marvel and we get the Sony logos, but we don't get the Disney logos. So I think it's 100% a Sony property that's acknowledging the existence of the other Sony properties. There's little crossovers, like you said, though, like Donald Glover. He was live action Aaron, whatever. Yeah, but I don't think he signed a contract with Disney to be, uh, you know, like Disney doesn't own Donald Glover. Sure. sure. Okay. So, um, so then Far From Home. Let's talk about that one. So now, again, we've got kind of these implications from the MCU where Tony Stark apparently wronged some intern who now has become Mysterio. They want to intro- it's quite believable that Tony Stark wronged a ton of people in his career as the mega, sure. like a megalomaniacal. That, that, that's like, the, that's the source person. of plot in more than one movie. He, Tony Stark wronging somebody and them seeking revenge on Tony Stark, yeah, creates a whole lot of supervillains in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Yeah. Okay, so we have Mysterio and a school field trip. Um, I wouldn't say a big fan of this one, Josh. I, it, it feels kind of small-minded. It's a bit angsty. It feels like it sh- a lot of it should have just been an episode of some teenager sitcom on Disney Channel. It uh, Okay, so th- this is probably my biggest pet peeve with this movie. Like, it's it's still good and still worth seeing. Um, sure. But I'm not going to be sitting around on a Saturday being like, I'm going to watch a movie. Ooh, that's Get Far From Home. Um, like, first of all, Mysterio, I hate when they do this. Like, the obvious villain is framed as the good guy at the beginning. Because it's not a surprise, guys. Mysterio is a classic Spider-Man right. villain, has been he, for decades. All he's the Chekhov's only th- gun. Yeah. The only thing you're going to surprise me with is when and why he twists and becomes the villain. Oh, he was the villain. It, it, the that's whole time. such a fundamental mistake, and I totally agree with you. The the like, let's surprise them by letting us think that Mysterio might be a good guy. Like anyone that e- even his name sounds like a bad guy. <laughs> anybody that googled the word mysterio before they went to the theater the first right. line in the wikipedia article i think is a classic spider-man villain <laughs> yeah there's a, there's no point in the history of ever where mysterio was a good guy so when you hear that the bad guy for this movie is going to be when you hear that mysterio is going to be in this movie you're just waiting for the reveal yeah that's that's and the thing that was a big twist. mistake uh, so uh, my biggest pet peeve with this movie is that it felt like you could almost evenly slice it into episodes of a Disney Plus TV series. Yeah. And I do enjoy watching Tom Holland interact, less so some of the other uh, actors that, you know, like the the girlfriend and, and, and Ned have their, like, pseudo, their uh, vacation um, fling summer yeah. uh, mm-hmm. romance. Uh, okay. All right. Fine. <laughs> You know, a little bit more development of this inter- the homecoming version of Flash Thompson, which I find compelling and kind of interesting. I, they the introduction. The, they they focused on the story beats that we don't care about, and to the detriment of story beats we do care about. This was yeah. the first movie in the MCU that acknowledged that took place after everybody came back from being dead for five years. I agree, and they had some important things to say there, and I like that part of it. Yeah, but they barely explored it at all. Like, that easily could have been what drove the entire plot of this movie, but it's almost, like, they, they do they do touch on it, but it's just so unsatisfying. It's like, no, 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 that's the meat that I want to eat for this whole meal. Why are you taking it away as if it was the appetizer? Yeah, they just decide to introduce a new magic system to be their main plot device, <sighs> which is that before Tony Stark died, he put this defense system into orbit and space, and a pair of sunglasses operates it all, and Peter is the only one they'll work for, but he can give it to whoever he wants. It's such a MacGuffin. It's such a ridiculous it MacGuffin. Is. 
you know, granted, it, it makes sense in the context of the movie and of all the other ridiculous things that Tony Stark has put into space for reasons because he could. But it, it, it's this movie is a juxtaposition. It's dualities. It's man, this is a really compelling story about how the death of Iron Man is affecting Peter Parker. Man, why are they telling this stupid side quest story about Ned and his girlfriend instead of telling me about the blip? This is a really yeah. interesting thing with Spider-Man trying to integrate himself into an Avengers-level threat when and interfacing with uh, 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 Samuel L. Jackson as Nick Fury. Why do I care about his stupid name that the Europeans have given him and he's not wearing the right suit or whatever? Like, I, It's just like yeah. there's such good ideas on one side and you're fleshing out all the wrong stuff. We need to come up with a name with it, for this because I think there's there's a whole factor of whether of expectation where as a fan you like consider the possibilities with the setup they've given you with everything that's happened up to this point in the Marvel Cinematic Universe and this partnership between Sony and, and Disney or whatever the possibilities are so great and yet what you actually accomplished didn't live up to those possibilities and so I'm disappointed with it even though objectively it was pretty good. It was pretty good. It was, this is the thing, though. It could have been. Ugh, it's hard to quantify and say, like, oh, it wasn't what it could have been. Like, that's just opportunity cost. But sure. what you were saying, the ingredients that were put on the table. Imagine a boardroom with all of these story points up to this point, like laid out on the table. I can see half of the board being like, this is great stuff. We need to explore all of this in depth. And we have a great lens to do that with, with this angsty teenager already going through emotional trauma to really explore the death of Tony Stark, the the disappearance and reappearance of half the world's population. And then the other half of the boardroom is like, nah, screw that. We got a cool Spider-Man villain. Let's make this an awesome action movie. And then at the head of the table is this corporate guy that both sides are trying to persuade, like, go our way because it'll be the better movie. Yeah. Now, I do want to give props to the, the, the climactic action scenes where Peter is being attacked by Mysterio, who has, you know, gained power over this really powerful weapon system, and he doesn't know what's real and what isn't. There's some fantastic things done in the action at the end of that movie that I think stand up really well. It wouldn't be an MCU movie if we didn't have a disposable CGI army in the third act. <laughs> All right, so then we got Far From Home. Uh, we talked at length in the last episode about Across the Spider-Verse, so now that leads us to No Way Home. No Way Home was, uh, uh, it was, I think Disney knew that the Sony agreement, it was all falling to pieces. Um, there was a whole big blow up on the internet where Sony wanted more of the money and Disney didn't want to give it to them, and so that whole agreement was falling apart. And it, it felt like the divorce where both spouses were like, yeah, we're going to do one more Christmas and then this is over forever. Oh, and, man, that's a great metaphor, Josh. <laughs> I love it. It's the and, one last Christmas before the divorce. Oh, okay. that's beautiful. <laughs> so their whole point was, you know what? Let's put a bow on this whole thing. Let's tie up a bunch of loose ends. That's that's try to tell a compelling story. We're not going to have access to any of Sony's stuff after this, so let's pull all of it in right now. And 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 Daddy Disney's got the money to get Tom Holland, in, or not Tom Holland, but Tobey Maguire and Andrew Garfield out of retirement for this. I love it. 
and I've watched some of the like behind the scenes kind of playing and stuff. And the writers are like, they kept asking for more and the corporate guys kept saying yes. And so they just kept asking for more thinking like they couldn't possibly also say yes to bring him back. Willem Dafoe and Thomas Hayden church. And, and like, they just did a who's who of like Jamie all the Fox, great, ba- yeah, ba- yeah. Jamie Foxx and, and, and everybody and bring them all back all into one place. Oh, and, and for good measure, we'll throw in, um, Benedict Cumberbatch as Doctor Strange and, and they uh, just... Zendaya as as MJ still, which is fantastic. All right, so this is all right, I'm going to extend my metaphor. It's Disney and Fox are getting a divorce. They're going to go through one last Christmas, and the fans and the writers are the kids asking for all the presents, and the, neither parent is saying no. It's like yes, just just yes, everything that you want. Uh, that's awesome. Okay, now, but this is where it should have gone wrong. It should have gone like the Amazing Spider-Man second movie did, or the third original trilogy Spider-Man movie, and you brought in too many bad guys and too many good ideas, and it all just went to crap, and it didn't. Well, uh, now there's nitpicks. We can nitpick. I think they gave Jamie Foxx way too many lines, and that was probably built in his contract. The only way to get him back was to give him more lines than he deserved. Because why is Electro even talking right now? The grown-ups are doing things. Shut up, Jamie Foxx. <laughs> Um, okay. Like, we're telling a much better story with Dr. Octopus and Willem Dafoe. You be quiet. Um, and, and yeah, it should have gone wrong for so many reasons. And the premise was absolutely ludicrous, but it just turned into a spectacle and it turned into such a great story. And okay. Oh, the way that they it. built in the rebuild, the retelling of the, all right. It was also my payoff for yes. Tobey Maguire is weird and he's not the real Spider-Man. Yes. Thank you. I can forever forget about his stupid, gross web shooters. But then, yeah. then they they rewove and retold the Uncle Ben story in an unexpected, unanticipated, but organic way that I, I really appreciated. And Tom Holland acted the crap out of it. Tom Holland oh, was the only Spider-Man that didn't get the Uncle Ben death scene to act out. And he did the best. Of the three yeah. live-action Spider-Men, he did the best. Oh, yeah. Like Uncle and, Ben death. And we'd invested a lot more time in Marissa Tomei as Aunt May. Like, we... We, to be fair to everyone involved, you know, they didn't just try to set set up this domino and knock it down in the same movie. We'd had, what, like six movies with her in it? Yeah. Oh, that, that's something we haven't mentioned. I feel like anytime you get Walt Robert Downey Jr. and Marissa Tomei in the same building, I think everybody in the building can feel, like, gets on the edge of the seat, like, ooh, this is going to be good. <laughs> that's good. That's good movie charisma and, 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 and chemistry there. Okay, so... In my, in my opinion, again, spoilers for our list at the end. This is my favorite of the home trilogy. It just the audacity of it, the execution of it, the compelling conflict, the how much they tried to do and how many they accidentally got right. And the, the chemistry between the three actors playing Spider-Man um, that had already kind of been shown that it would work in the um, cart in the animated one. This idea of like Spider-Man feeling lonely, but then feeling a kinship to someone else that goes through the same things that he does. It's just, it was just perfect. I just loved it. It makes sense. Peter Parker is the type of person that would have a kinship with himself. Like he's trying to be a nice guy anyway, and nobody understands Peter Parker better than Peter Parker. And, and the and right. key to the whole thing was exactly what I wanted. It was Spider-Man reconciling his spider life versus his civilian life. That's what caused this whole Doctor Strange magical nonsense to happen. It's like, I just need my life to be normal again. Can we please undo everything that we did? All right. So let's do uh, some rapid fire uh, things here. Who's the best Spider-Man? Tom Holland. The, he's the only Spider-Man in my mind. Um, yeah, he's the best. Best Spider-Man. Uh, 
I, I, I'm going to agree, but I'm going to give a, a honorable mention to Shamik Moore as as um, Miles Morales. He's not Peter Parker, but and probably my favorite is Peter B. Parker, played by Jake Johnson. <laughs> um, I, I'm not going to rank the other ones. Like the other guys, you are great Spider Man too. You're different Peter Parkers. It's fine, but you you don't hold a candle to Tom Holland. Sorry. Notable women in the Spider Man universe. Uh, Mary Jane Watson and uh, 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 Gwen, Gwen Stacy, obviously, and Aunt May. Okay, so who May. are the definitive versions of those three? Ooh, good call. Um, I like Emma Stone as Gwen Stacy, but I don't know if that's because she's the best Gwen Stacy or if she's just Emma Stone and I love Emma Stone. Yeah, it's hard between her and Haley Steinfeld as Spider-Gwen, but yes, I, I'll go with Emma Stone. Um, I think Zendaya does a very interesting version of Mary Jane Watson. I like her Mary Jane Watson quite a bit. Um, at the same time, I think, oh, who's the... Kirsten the Dunst. Kirsten Dunst. Ah, I, I was growing up, had a, a crush on Kirsten Dunst because she is very cute, but she can't, I, I don't think she can act worth a damn. Like, I no, just and can't she's another it. person suffering from the fact that she was too old to play a young teenager. It was like, I, there was one part in the first Spider-Man movie where she was like experiencing domestic disturbance, like in her house and came out back and was sad for five seconds and then went super flirty, like on the, on the turn of a dime. And maybe that's just teenage hormones, but Kirsten Dunst, you did not do that scene very well. <laughs> yeah, I'm going with Zendaya too, even though she was a bit quirky and different than the usual, you know, kind of plucky kind of um, mainstream MJ that's usually depicted in the comics. That makes and way Am- more sense that Peter Parker would get together with not the popular girl, but the weird quirky one. That makes way more sense. What about Aunt May? Ooh, Aunt May. Um, I think the Spider-Verse like animated Aunt May. I think she's got to be the best one. Yep, played by classic comedian and actress Lily Tomlin is, I think, the definitive Aunt May. I, I like Marissa Tomei, but I, I never was on board with the like young Aunt May thing. I, I always felt like she needs to be old. I, I also appreciate that in the Spider Verse trilogy, Aunt May isn't a damsel. She's like a like a support character almost. Like things happen, and she's just she's not like, oh no, the bad guys are at my house. It's more like, hey guys, take it outside. This is my couch. Yeah. Yeah. All right. What about other actors and actresses that pwned the role? Maybe owned it so well that you could never imagine anyone else in the role. Uh, Doctor Octopus. I forget the in the Tobey Maguire Alfred, films. Alfred Molina is Doctor Octopus. Okay. This was a good, good casting choice. One, that guy's a solid actor. Two, he knew the role that he was playing and did it well. And three, like nothing against him or anything, but Doctor Octopus in the comics is is a more heavy set guy. He's not this huge built dude. He's a scientist, and like the guy portrayed that physicality perfectly. Awesome. I can never imagine anyone else as Green Goblin, but Willem Dafoe just mm. just owns that role, and 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 his reprisal in No Way Home was just it t- stole this, every scene he was in. He does a very good Jekyll and Hyde, like very very good. Now, Alfred Molina was an excellent Doctor Octopus, but reimagining Doctor Octopus as a woman in the Spider Verse by Catherine Hahn, who was also the witch uh, in um, um, WandaVision. I, I can't remember the witch's character. Oh, yeah. Um, I, yeah. I know what you're talking about. Those two are the same person, but she was excellent. However, I, my tops goes to J.K. Simmons as J. Jonah Jameson. No one will ever be. You can't. J. Yeah. J.K. Simmons is J. Jonah Jameson. I think That's they right. revamped the comics that it's now just it's it's just J.J. Simmons in all of like they just draw him in the comics now. Um, yeah. I. I, I, that scene with the reveal of the female Dr. Octopus was such a great subversion of expectations 
And it's like, oh, what's your name? Oh, I can't wait to watch you die. Like, what's your name again? Elizabeth Octavia. Let me guess, your friends call you Dr. Octopus? No, my friends call me Liv. My enemies. <laughs> my enemies call me Dr. Octopus. Or yeah. that, that, was, that was a great scene. Classic. So these 10 movies have made uh, $8.9 billion at the box office. I don't think we've seen the end of Spider-Man in our lifetime or even in the next two years. <laughs> <laughs> well, Sony's going to come up on their, on their revamp of their license at some point. Is this the Spider-Verse movies count? I guess the Sony animation. So the animation ones haven't made as much at the box office as the others have. I don't know why. I guess people just have an aversion to them. But they make enough that they can keep going. They're not losing money. Uh, The most successful of all the trilogies is the home trilogy with Tom Holland. Um, To To all my American listeners, get over yourselves. Animation is a legitimate art form. Like, you're going to make fun of me for being an anime nerd, but I am because it doesn't matter. It's just a storytelling choice. The same way that filmmakers choose to film in black and white versus color. Whether you want to do a movie in live action or animation, it's just a style choice. The movie is just as good. So of the four trilogies, I'm putting that in air quotes, where do you feel like the second movie was better than the first? Uh, ooh, hmm. I think The Amazing Spider-Man 2 was better than The Amazing Spider-Man. Uh, the Amazing Spider-Man suffered from just weird uh, pacing and editing more so than the second one. Uh, that said, the third act in Amazing Spider-Man 2 is a complete dumpster fire. Like, yeah. we didn't need a surprise Green Goblin at the end. We could have figured out how to kill Emma Stone with Electro just as easily. I don't know why they did that. But I do still think Amazing Spider-Man 2 is better than Amazing Spider-Man. Um, Across the Spider-Verse might be a little better than Into the Spider-Verse, but you can't watch the second one without watching the first one. There's too much lore that is built in the first one, so I don't know if that counts. They feel like just one movie that's split with big intermissions. And in the Sam Raimi trilogy, you also already said the second one's better, so then you're saying the only one where the second one was worse than the first is the Tom Holland trilogy? Um, yeah, I think that's, I think that's the case. And, and now that there's an argument to be made that Civil War was the first MCU Spider-Man movie and Homecoming was the second, which would make the we, second we Spider-Man movie the to best do this. It just makes it too complicated. <laughs> uh, I'm not going to say that Amazing Spider-Man 2 was better than the first one. So I'm going to give it 50%. You, you gave three out of four. Okay. G- good on them. Um, why, why do we love the Spider-Man myth so much? We've kind of talked about it. What What is it about it that makes it work for us? Why Why do people want to hear this story over and over? For me, I think it's the hero with a thousand faces. Not only that, but I think it's also we can easily put ourselves in the role of Peter Parker. Yeah, nobody knows what it's like to be Spider-Man and have to balance their, their, their other real life. But everybody knows what it's like to have a professional life with professional expectations and per, like like things that I should do for my career. But then I, uh, but then having the life at home that this is the life that I want to live. I, I'm going through this now. I'm I'm looking for a new. I got my CPA, so I'm looking at new jobs. And everybody that I interview with, the expectation is, oh yeah, uh, we work 50 hours a week, and then during tax season we're here 60 to 70 hours. And me sitting here silently going, I don't want that life. You just leveled up in life. You just got a new superpower. Ugh, I got a new sort of no 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 no. I got I finally got yet another bureaucratic agency to acknowledge yeah i am pretty smart would you please pay me more that's all that happened that's a superpower gross stop it um what is the significance of the raimi trilogy in the pantheon of comic book movies Mm. do you think it's significant 
I think Sam Raimi demonstrated it was a it was a litmus test that there is ways that you can translate these comic book plot lines successfully onto film in a way that makes sense for film. And let's not forget that Spider-Man came out in 2002, Spider-Man 2 was 2004, Spider-Man 3 was 2007, and Iron Man was 2008. Yeah. So I think there's some some interesting timing there where it comes we see the first two Spider-Man movies come out to like good box office numbers and to good like like people acknowledge yeah so these even are, though these 3 are crashed and burned it paved the way for Iron Man. By the time 3 crashed and burned they were already filming Iron Man so that didn't really factor into the equation. Okay. Wow. That was good. All right, it's time for our top 10 list. Ooh, all right, you want to go first? Or you want me to go first? So let's trade numbers, and we'll start from the bottom up. So my number 10 is Spider-Man 3 the, from the Sam Raimi trilogy. I, yeah, it's I, still watchable, but it's easily the worst of the bunch. Yeah. The middle part of this list is going to be hard, but the, the the top three and the bottom three are easy. Spider-Man 3 is, is just bad. There's so many memes about it. Toby Maguire, you don't dance well. I don't know why they did that to you. Go. We need to find the video where like that guy that removes all the music from movies to see how yeah. ridiculous they are. That's one that he did, and they show Toby Maguire like pelvic thrusting, at, and, yeah, at, yeah, on the sidewalk in New York City. Yeah, you're you're a sex offender, is what you're doing there, Toby <laughs> Maguire. Okay, at number nine on my list, I put Amazing Spider-Man two. I think you put this one higher on yours. Yeah, I think Amazing Spider-Man, unfortunately, gets the, the, the second-to-worst list for me. I'm spreading it out, though, because at number eight, I've got Spider-Man Far From Home, and it's only this far down the list for me because of what happened above it. So I had to put one from the, the Tom Holland trilogy kind of low, and this was the one for me. I, I Yeah, I agree this is the worst of the Tom Holland trilogy, but I still think it's better than The Amazing Spider-Man 2. So sorry, Mark Webb and Andrew Garfield. Andrew Garfield, you're a great Spider-Man, but the movie was just was just a train wreck. Okay, what do you have at number seven? Number eight. I thought I uh, oh now what's next? Uh, probably Spider-Man, the original, the 2002 Spider-Man. Okay, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I I I think you made a good case for that. Okay, at number seven, I've got the Amazing Spider-Man. That's the highest I go on this. I just put it there because I thought it was fine. This is where I'm going to put uh, Far From Home, I think. I would rather watch Doc Ock in, with Tobey Maguire than I would Mysterio with Tom Holland, unfortunately. At number six, I've got Spider-Man Homecoming, and I wrestled over this for a while, and again, it's because of what was happening above it in the list. Uh, I maybe could put this one at five or four, but right now I've got it at number six. No, I think this one's going to be Spider-Man 2. If I haven't put that on my list yet, this is this is where Spider-Man 2 lives. Ooh, right in the middle. We're about to have a controversy. Okay, so at number five, I have the original uh, Sam Raimi, um, oh, what's his name? Tobey Maguire Spider-Man. I think I've gone through all of my original Spider-Mans, and I've gone through both of the amazing Spider-Mans. So number five on my list has got to be, this has got, is this, this is probably where Far From Home lives, Yeah. Okay. If I haven't said it yet, I think this is where Far From Home lives. I think our um, our age difference is what's accounting for the differences here, and I'll, I'll justify it in a minute. So at number four, I have uh, Into the Spider-Verse, and I've got both the animated ones in my top four. Hmm. I've, yeah, both those animated ones obviously are my top four. Now, we're talking. the only ones that are left are the two animated ones and then the two other home trilogies. So uh, I think this is where No Way Home lives for me. With uh, mm. like Even with all the ridiculous payoffs and the huge budget, this is like – the other movies were more grounded and a little better for Spider-Man for me. Okay. I've got No Way Home at number three. 
and that's my top out of the home trilogy. My, my favorite of the three uh, is that the most recent one. I think Into the Spider Verse is my number three. Like the uh, yeah, the first Miles Morales animated one. Okay, so I'm interested in your top two. At number two, I have Across the Spider Verse, which is the most recent uh, animated movie. Fantastic. You can kind of, if you're listening along, you could probably put together that Josh and I are going to have very wildly different number ones. Go ahead and give your number two. <laughs> My number two is Across the Spider Verse. Okay, the... so we both have the same number two on our list. Yep, but our so, number one so is Homecoming. Your number one. Homecoming is my number one. That's that's wow. peak Spider-Man. I've got it at number six. Number one for me is Spider-Man 2. Let me tell you why. Wow. Me, it's, wow. It's, Sam Raimi back in the day? Yeah. It really is. It stands up well. It's a well-told story. It was kind of at the at the cutting edge of the technology that was available to it. Sam Raimi pulled all of his skills out of his bag of tricks from the back. There's lots of practical effects. But it was just... It was groundbreaking. It was good, well executed. It was important. It was kind of out by itself. It, it wasn't. It didn't have all these other movies around it to prop it up. It just stood alone as a great film. It was a great sequel. It was significant. It came at a time in my life when I really connected with it, and it, to me, it's my number one Spider-Man movie. Homecoming, uh, 2017, with Tom Holland. There's a scene where the Vulture, like in the third act, like collapses the building onto Peter in his old suit and he's trapped under all this rubble and he's trying to muster. There's this great transformation that happens in the scene because at first he's just like, he wakes up and he's just terrified that he's trapped and he tries tentatively to push and it's not moving and just starts screaming for help. Like I'm down here, please come, come save me the way that any teenager going through a panic attack would. And then you see him have to collect himself. Like nobody's coming. It's all on you. You've got to pick yourself up. He's like, and he starts pushing. He's like, all right, come on, Peter. Come on, Peter. And then he changes. Come on, Spider-Man. Because he knows Peter Parker's not taking care of this. This is Spider-Man that's doing this one. And like just to see this, this great solo scene with just Tom Holland going through this emotionally traumatic event that every young person is going to have to, realizing that there's no one that's going to be able to help them. They have to like find it within themselves to overcome the adversity. And it was just so perfect. And it's everything I want Spider-Man to be. Josh, that was amazing. You moved me. I'm going to go back and watch that scene again <laughs> and watch for what you're talking about. Because I didn't notice that. I didn't pick up on it. But it was so compelling the way you just retold it that I can't wait to watch it again. I also have a theory about this. I think I'm going to have to go back and check and confirm. But I think I was the same age when Spider-Man 2 came out as the age you were when Homecoming came out. What? And I wonder if the, you are yeah. n- you are not thirteen years older than me. How old are you? Uh, uh, it, it, it's only like seven or eight, so I guess it's uh, okay. Spider Man so Two came out in two thousand and four. Homecoming mm-hmm. came out in two thousand seventeen. You are not thirteen years uh, older. Okay, than so me. it's it wasn't thirteen years. Okay, so so much <laughs> for that theory. Maybe it's a phase of five years. I don't know, but it, it just it connected ge- with me. Maybe at the it's right a generational time. thing. Maybe Gen Xers like the Sam Raimi's better than the Tom Hollands, and the Millennials like the Tom Hollands better than the Sam Raimi's. Well, audience, I know we've we've gone longer than our usual time, and I think you realize that that's because Josh and I both enjoy this story, this hero's round, and connect with it, and it, it, it's a, an important part of our nerd culture, and we hope you enjoyed this talk with us. If you have something you want to say, something you want to add to the discussion, something we missed, something we couldn't think of, uh, come join in the discussion. You can go on our Facebook page and comment there, or you can go on our subreddit and, and uh, drop in a comment. We'd love to hear from you. 
If you like what we do, share us with a friend. If you like us, maybe your friends will like us too. If you really want to show us some love, consider taking your phone out of your pocket and giving us a good review on the podcast player of your choice. We get such great visibility from that. And thank you to everyone who already has. And if you want me to yell at Ben about animation and movies just being good movies, doesn't matter where they came from, from now until the end of time, consider becoming a patron on our Patreon page. And until next time, try to be a little less bad at magic. Bye.